What's it called? Call That Radio. You Call That Radio. You call, Okay, yeah. This is Steve Mason, and you're listening to You Call That Radio. Brothers and sisters, may the peace that can only come from the one God be upon you. We are here to tell the people that we hear you. Welcome to the art of everything, the meaning of life, and sometimes things about crisps. You're tuned into episode 12 of You Call That Radio. Coming up later on, we have an extended interview with one of my all-time heroes, Steve Mason. This is episode 12 and day 10 of No Smoking for Me. Actually, can we cut that, Hamish? Can we just cut that? Aye, I sound like a fucking game show host. I want this to be right. It's a big deal having Steve Mason on the show. I want this to be a good episode. I want it to be perfect. And also, day 10 of No Smoking in episode 12 sounds a bit clumsy. So I was thinking, I'll maybe just pretend it's day 12 of No Smoking. I mean, nobody will know the difference. It's not going to bother anyone. Nothing will come yet if I just pretend it's day 12 of No Smoking episode 12 and I'll, and I'll just come in a bit cooler as well so I don't sound overly enthusiastic go right okay cool right okay I've got it got it okay did you delete that if you delete that take if you deleted that take right okay let's go let's take two you call that radio welcome to the heart of everything the meaning of life and sometimes things about crisps. It's you call that radio day 12 of no smoking, and it's episode 12. What'd you make of that? That's mad, isn't it? 
It's a, uh, yeah, synchronicity. Aye. S uh, serendipity. I don't know, but it's definitely day 12 of No Smoking for me, and it's definitely episode 12. So, for, for those who don't know, it's not exactly my first attempt at not smoking. <laughs> but I've actually found it really easy this time because I've been off the social media. No alcohol, no caffeine or any other hangs apart from crisps and ice poles. But I think the reason it's been that easy is I've not really been on the internet. I've had a bit of a cold. So I just just didn't go on social media much or, or well, very little. And I think, you know, I, I'm not saying it's your fault for me smoking, but definitely seems to be a lot easier to not smoke if you don't have to deal with people either in real life or on the internet. So I think maybe I'm just going to eventually scrap the internet. I, I, in fact, do you know what be quite good? If maybe one of the listeners, we have a wee raffle or something every week, uh, like a lottery or something, and someone that listens to the show has got to go on the internet and find out if anything's been happening on the internet and find out if we've been missing anything, you know what I mean? We've got to just... I don't know, we could just have a segment called What's Been Happening on the Internet or something like that. And then you it's just so we're not missing anything important, but then we don't need to deal with social media or anything like that. So, pro as if there is anything even happening on the internet. I mean, mostly, I mean, let's be honest, it's been shite recently. It's just strangers arguing with other strangers in comment sections. And sometimes... I get tempted myself, but I just remind myself, you, I don't need to, you, you know, I just say to myself, you don't need to type stuff. The comments section will just, will be just fine without you. You don't need to type. It'll actually be okay. The internet will be okay without my input. And it's pretty mentally think that you're going to get another guy you've never met to admit that they're completely wrong and you are right. It's a very unrealistic and very addictive computer game on an extremely high difficulty setting. And people are playing it all the time, just having, you know, online battles with anonymous avatars that will never agree with you. You don't even know these people. They usually have a, a flag as a profile picture. You're arguing with a flag, mate. You're arguing with a flag. And all computer games are stressful when you don't get to any of the next level. You're just stuck in the first level, ground level, and everybody's unhealthy and unhelpful, and so are you. And there's this vicious cycle of angry people bouncing off of each other like dodgems in a bouncy castle. Unhappy people making each other unhappy. -er. And I'm not saying Scotland was healthy before the internet. Maybe we were the virus that infected the internet and now the whole world is chain-smoking, eating fish suppers and arguing with our enemies on the internet. Enemies they've never met. We speak more to our enemies that we've never met than our own friends and families these days. Just remember, you don't need to type anything. I know that people say annoying things, but the comment section will be fine without you. It's... In fact, it's almost always better if you don't type something. Because we live in a world where people... Wait, this is my other thing that I hate, apart from the arguments in the comments sections of the internet, is 
people ask a lot of you. People want instant access to you. They want they want an instant reply all the time. So see if you are typing in a comment section, Facebook will feed that to the person that you've not replied to. It will show up in their newsfeed. And then they'll be like, oh, he's online. i seen him. Did you see him? He's online. Hasn't replied yet to me, the bastard. But he's online. I mean, I think Facebook deliberately does grass shit in because, like, I kind of gave up on Facebook when they brought in the, you know, the wee tick, the wee tick where Facebook grasses in to say that you've seen the message. There's a wee tick. And, I, and that always annoys me. It's like, well, how do you know I've seen it? I could be in a different room and just left the laptop on. I could have fell asleep with my head on the on the desk. Uh, you know, you, you can't, Facebook can't see outside, out of my retina, out of my eyeball yet. Yeah, anyway, that is. You know, just because it's saying it's seen, I could be drunk. Too drunk to read. Or too drunk to remember it. Or busy. It could be relationship drama. There could be a friend going mental drama. There could be an emergency. I could be sick. I could be dead. And there's also a method to the madness. You know, I don't always answer straight away because maybe I don't know the answer to the question. Or it's in the morning. And I've not loaded up yet. And I need to load up, you know, with some sort of hot beverage and just kind of sort of, it takes me a wee while to wake up. Trust me, you wouldn't want me to answer your question before I've loaded up. So I've got to psych myself up into the inbox zone. So I say I wake up and I've got five questions or, or 10 questions to respond to. And, you know, I've just woke up and I've got all these messages. And I'm, I'm in the inbox zone. I'm like, right, okay, let's do it, let's do it. And the first request that I have is someone saying alright Mark can you share it can you share my new music video and I'll be like I check it out and I like it and the person's sound they'd probably share mine so I'm like I'll write a nice thing about this video and I'll share it but then that means the other four people that I haven't replied to yet are like he's not replied to me yet because I, I, I need to open up each message individually or otherwise I'll forget about the, the message that came before it so they're like oh, he's on the internet you see you just shared the video he's on the internet and then that's when they hit you with the, the intrusive douche. You know, you know, it's like a question mark. Do you ever get that? A solitary question mark. Dink. It's not a dink. A dink's more for contactless payments. This is definitely a douche. An intrusive douche. Just a question mark. Basically someone saying, I can see you're online. What about me? Now... By the way, I'm not going to go anyone who asks me to do stuff. I'll always go my way to help. If I possibly can, feel free to contact me at all times, but don't expect an instant answer. And please don't do the solitary douche a question mark. Don't send me a fucking question mark. You know what I mean? Just the internet's just... People, you know, they have got 24-hour access to you. And they can just get an instant reply from you at any second. And, you, you know... There's other things going on. You know what I mean? You can be busy. And I just, like, I'm just sort of just minding my own business. And then it's like, what the fuck's that? What's that? See, that's what I'm talking about. There's a douche. There's a douche coming right now. Hold on, my, my laptop is ringing. Someone's phoning my laptop. What a fucking day and age we live in. Someone's phoning my laptop. 
Where the fuck's that? Where the fuck's that? Hello? <coughs> is that uh, is that Marvin Altrad? Oh, so sorry, Marvin Altrade. Yeah, it's Mark Altrade. Who's that? Hi, Marvin. This is Harold Arbuthnot, the managing overseer of the Office of Fair Podcasting, or OOFP for short. What? We the um, have Office of Fair Podcasting. What's that? The Office. Of, you've never heard of the Office of Fair Podcasting? Mate, I'm new to it. I've just started. I've just started. Well, I'd like to assume that you have done all due diligence in understanding the authorities behind the actions you're taking online, Mr. Altrades. Yeah, I, I kicked the box. I kicked the box. You, why are you phoning me? Is this a well, sales call? Listen, I'll, uh, I'll, uh, no, no, no. Absolutely quite the opposite. And it's quite a serious call, Marvin. Listen to me. My um, monitoring gurus have uh, identified a breach of subsection 3, paragraph L of the protection from lies and inexcusable disinformation in podcasting policy, or PLDIP for short. Now, this is quite a serious as I told you, it is the protection from lies and inexcusable disinformation in podcasting policy. Now, we have determined that upon your IP, and that is Internet Protocol Address, that you have stated you've been off the fags for 12 days. Is that correct, Mr. Olsen? Yeah, that's correct. I've, I've not smoked for 12 days, and it's episode 12. Would you tell me that that is all the truth and nothing but the truth, Mr. Olsen? Yeah, I. It's um, no, it's I just, it's it's like, you know, it's like Steve Mason's on this episode. It's episode twelve, and I've not smoked for twelve episodes. Well, so can, kind of like, do, 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 do. That's kind of the point. Well, unfortunately, you know, the evidence points to bootleg of serendipity, my friend. As we have reason to believe, it has only been ten. <laughs> well, <laughs> bootlegging serendipity, bootlegging synchronicity. I've never heard anything. You can't. Listen, you can't. You can rhyme all you like, but it's simple. You have breached section three, paragraph L. Now, I have to say that rules are rules. I'm simply the messenger, okay? As I said, my job. name is Harold Arbuthnot for your rest. Just like a job. Uh, absolutely not. Phone I uphold peace. You phone it. You're phoning my. You're phoning my. You're, why are you on my computer? I don't even know. It's how do you? How have you even heard that? conversation that the podcast isn't even in Again, I would like to point to your due diligence in the processes you undertake online, Mr. Altrades. Now, let me just say that I have powers, in short. And in this breach that you have given, I have the power to absolutely restrict your access from ever podcasting again. Does that sound serious enough, Marvin? Fuck. Wait. Did they, like, I, I, I want to do the podcast. I'm just starting to get at the podcast. Don't put now, put listen, unfortunately, put ignorance of the law is no excuse, and Which, the Office of Fair Podcasting will not stand for it. Now, I will give you one chance, Mister. Well, do you know what the way I see it is? Right, right. What is your name? Sorry. It is um, Harold Arbuthnot. A. Uh, right. I'm just Sorry, I'll just call you Harry. Right. Okay, Harry. Right, it's Harold. Right. Right. right, well, this is the script. You, for some reason, you shouldn't have heard this podcast because it's not out for another two days yet, so I have no idea how you've managed to hear that conversation. Secondly, um, I'll not... I'll, you must have agreed to the terms of service of the provider you're using, Marvin. 
it's going to come. It's going to come out on day twelve of no smoking episode twelve. So basically, there's no harm done here. Like it, there, I promise, there's no harm. No, there's not only like harm and lies. Only harm and lies, and the truth shall out, my friend. Now, I have to say that unless you order a full and total retraction within the podcast that are recorded, and issue a public apology to the bequeathed of the internet, then I will potentially think about calming down on this. Right, th- this is the thing, right, you, you've, you've, you've intruded into my, I was just talking, I was just talking, I don't even know how you've heard this, but this podcast isn't out till, oh, I've done 12 days of smoking the time, this podcast no. comes out, so episode 12 comes out after 12 days, listen, so how do I, listen, you can, you can, you can live fancy in the fact that at least somebody listens to your podcast, okay? Oh, that's uh, harsh. That's how you There's no need for that. Is as I know, like a segment section where you know it'd just be cheeky to. How are you going to issue the apology within the podcast recorded? What's happening, man? What's happening? Fortunately, this is real. What I'm saying. Try to say that's no intrusive. That's an intrusive douche. This place is getting worse by the day. By place, I mean internet. What's happening? What's happening in the internet? Everyone assumes you're going to have a contactless bank card these days. Matchup and pin crew are becoming strangers in our own country. A country we built with good old-fashioned button pushing. The worst bit is, is when they see you're not going to just dink the thing. You want to waste a valuable five seconds of their time by pushing four buttons. That look and that moment when they say, Oh, it's one of their cards. And I respond with, yeah, I'm old school, lol. And I hate myself every time I do it for responding that way. Fuck's sake, it makes me cringe that I say, I'm old school, lol. It reminds me of when supermarket counter staff asked me if I had a loyalty card. And since the dawn of time, I would say, I would probably just lose it, lol. Earlier this year, I got my first loyalty card to stop that cringy conversation. I don't regret that decision, as my points are growing. But I will use all the loyalty points and staying loyal to my chip and pin crew. I'll go contactless once you all move to fingerprints and retina scans, because that's what you want to save valuable time. A second saved every transaction. That adds up to one whole minute every 60 transactions. Think of all the work you will get done. I will never think. Remember they switched card payments from signatures to PIN numbers for security? Years later, they just went, oh fuck security, let's go contactless. I lost my bank card for a few days there. I got it back, it wasn't contactless, thankfully. How do you contactless people sleep at night when you lose your card? It's actually a good way of staying awake. If you ever feel tired, as if you're going to fall asleep and you have work to do, 
then simply throw your contactless card into the street outside your window and you're almost guaranteed to stay awake. Fuck the coffee, fuck the uppers, fuck the fucking red fucking bull. Simply leave your card on a pavement and get some work done. Cause you seem very busy, but I will never think. But apparently it's okay, cause you can only steal up to 30 pounds per transaction with your bank card up to four times a day and only take 120 quid a day. Then you just write to the banks a wee letter and ask them for money. <laughs> What's in it for you? Why do people want this? I get why shops want it, I get why the banks want it, but why do you want to risk getting bumped so easily to save yourself 10 seconds in a queue? Are you so busy? You don't have enough time to put in a pin number anymore? Are things that hectic, mate? Are they? Aye. Or does it make you feel cool? Do you think you're in Star Trek? Aye. Well, enjoy. After all, they can only bump you 120 quid a day. And you're so busy getting so much work done that I'm sure you'll make that back in no time. But I will never think. I will never think. Welcome to episode 12 of You Call That Radio with Steve Mason. Coming up today, we have an extended interview with Scotland's greatest songwriter of all time, in my opinion, Steve Mason. They say you should never meet your heroes, but I've met Steve Mason. He was sound so there, sharp. But before we do that, as much as I've been enjoying my wee stint offline, I can't help think that I've been missing out, so no social media. I never watch TV. And I also found a wee setting on my phone called Do Not Disturb which means my phone rings, but my phone just says it's a missed call. Some top-of-the-range, inbuilt, digital piss-off technology right there. Uh, one of my friends, Will, calls it the dinghy pinger. And it's all been very relaxing. But also, it's a wee bit isolating as well, because you think you're missing out, and it? it's that, it was called uh, FOMO. They call it FOMO. The fear of missing out. So I decided to log on and ask the internet, What's been happening in the internet? So we'll call this bit, What's been happening in the internet? I might, you might have heard a jingle there. If I've not put a jingle there, it's probably because I can't be. Uh, it's probably because your Wi-Fi's broken. So anyway, first up, did you know that Heather Smalls from M People, remember the moving on up? Did you know that Heather Smalls is a second cousin to rap singer Notorious B.I.G., a.k.a. Biggie Smalls. You couldn't make it up. Couldn't write it. Sorry, you can and I just did. But what's actually happening on the internet? Well, Mikey says, a study says that supermarkets just over the English border have seen a 5% increase in alcohol sales since Scotland's minimum price ban. And that's from The Guardian. Now, these supermarkets are going to be even busier now with angry Scottish parents who want to smack their wains and then they can get themselves a cheap bottle of Frosty Jacks for the drive home. Now, in case you don't know, Scotland has just banned the smacking of wains, which I thought they did a while ago. Seanzo actually phoned in, you call that radio, to say he thought it was banned 10 years ago and thinks there's some sort of Mandela effect going on. So we might have discovered a wee Mandela effect. Does anyone else remember that Scotland's already banned smacking Michael Black messaged in 
to say the internet has been full of angry men being angry and no being able to hit their wains. And angry men being angry at wains, telling them that the planet's fucked. And probably some more things involving angry men. Uh, we'll get back to Greta in a minute. As for the smacking the wains, I don't really have an opinion on it. I don't have kids, so it's easy for me to say it's a good thing. You know, why are you smacking a wane? But also, I don't have a wane, so I can't really comment on it. Also, the people saying that they want to hit their wanes seem to be the kind of people I would normally disagree with. So I'm basing it on that as well. And, you know, people saying, oh, it never did me any harm, says the people that are always pure raging with anger management issues. I mean, that's not fair. Not all people who are against the smacking ban are always people pure raging with anger management issues. But all people that are pure raging with anger management issues are also against the smacking ban. That's a snappy take, wasn't it? Sorry, I hate that general not all argument type thing. It's, it's childish and it's lazy, but it helps you win the argument. Although that's the first time I've tried that against angry people who like arguing a lot, so I'll probably just stop and move on. Like I said, I don't have kids, so I don't know. Don't smack me. I do know that we have a song called Smoking Ban. Maybe it's time we change a vowel and bring it up to 2019. Maybe get a trap beat and that, hey, hey, hand clap thing with an auto-tuned chorus. And maybe we could have our first hit. Hits. Probably a bad choice of words. Hold on, that's my phone going. An intrusive douche. I'm just dinging that. I'm dinging it. See, if you just answered the phone all the time, you'd never actually get a podcast done. So, dingy that. Jennifer McGinley says, some Rangers fans had a classy wedding. There was anywhere between 100 and 1 million folk at a march in Edinburgh yesterday and the drummer out of Cream died. R.I.P. Yeah, I seen the, yeah, the wedding. Yeah, okay. And there was an independence march and it's always the same though, that, isn't it? Like, you know, if someone's running a march, they always sort of highball it and the media always lowball it and usually find that the truth is somewhere in the middle. It's just hard to kind of, I don't think the human brains really can handle a crowd. I mean, I could probably guess what a crowd is. I mean, I can guess a, a gig if there's 100, 200. I could guess, I think I know what, I've played to 2,000 people before, so I can kind of get that. I did a song once with, at Belladrum this year. That was the biggest crowd I've ever played. That was 15,000 people, we were told. Yeah, that, that was a lot. It's just really weird that when you play to that many people, it doesn't actually, it's not that nerve-wracking. I think it's because you can't see all the people in one go in your eyesight. So you can't really take in, you know, how sh how scared you should be for something like that. It was actually quite fun. Holly, Holly Days has messed in. What's been happening in the internet, Holly? Cats, breakfast, selfies, and Brexit. That kind of sums up. Yeah. yeah that kind of sums up the internet. As I remember it, since Monday, your Prime Minister will get caught having an affair and paying the women involved with government tax funders' money to go on all-expenses-paid business trips worth £200,000 business trips she'd absolutely nothing to do with. I mean, he had an absolute shocker of a weak Boris. I think his, his da slagged him. His sister said that he was just doing Brexit because he'd bet on money. He'd bet in the pound feeling. And, you know, it seems like that might actually be a thing. Imagine if a Prime Minister was actually betting on your pound feeling, obviously, allegedly. But it seems like that's 
what might be happening, which is just crazy. And also, the only person that actually came out and supported him was a guy who called him Joris Bonson. Joris Bonson. Joris Bonson. Joris Bonson. So then, then he went on to be found guilty by the Supreme, Supreme Court of illegally stopping Parliament uh, to further his agenda and telling lies to the monarchy. He then went on to jovially claim that getting Brexit done would be the best way to do something in the memory of a left-wing Remain MP who was killed by a right-wing Brexiteer. In other news, Corbyn hasn't managed to fuck anything up this week, and he's actually released a pretty radical manifesto that would benefit the majority of people's lives should an election be called. Meanwhile, right-wing white males respond by having a go all week at a 16-year-old who has said that she thinks the world is fucked up and needs fixing. She's autism. She's speaking in her second language to the entire world's media and you think that she sounds scripted. I mean, what were you expecting? An after-dinner comedy roast by... Barack Obama, you know, the president of the United States. <laughs> also, message in to say that Fat Boy Slim has remixed Greta. I mean, I actually heard the speech. First time I heard it, and then later when I, I shared a techno remix of the speech, I thought, Fat Boy Slim's missing a trick if he doesn't do a right here, right now remix of this. I said it to myself, though, with no witnesses, and never even shared the thought on social media, so it's me that missed the trick. Never would it happen back when I was called Mark My Words. I used to be on point for stuff like that. I can't even say Fat Boy Slim stole my idea. Well, I mean, I can't prove he stole my idea now. But at least he's recycling. Just have this... Can't shake the image of Fat Boy Slim and Greta foraging through my wheelie bins to make sure I'm using the right wheelie bins. Arm. I think I am. And so here's a Swedish superstar and Norman Cook in my back garden checking the wheelie bins and they find my abandoned notepad filled with slightly less than average ideas. Flick to page eight and boom, there it is. Right here, right now. Save the planet remix. See, I can't, uh, I can't share you the Fatboy Slim remix for copyright reasons. So I'm going to play this other another remix of the Greta speech with some banging beats behind it. And then we're going to come back, listen to the words of Steve Mason from the Beta Band, who were my favourite band growing up, and all his solo material was brilliant as well. So you've got that to look forward to. It's a brilliant interview. Steve Mason coming up. But first, take it away, Greta. years. 
come here saying that you're doing enough when the politics and solutions needed are still nowhere in sight. In sight. You say you hear us and that you understand the urgency. I say we will never forgive you. We will never forgive you. And now it's time for the main event, an extended interview with the fantastic Steve Mason, who is genuinely one of my favourite songwriters, musicians, singers of all time. I grew up listening to the Beater Band, seen them at Tea in the Park when I was very young, when I seen them at the Barras when I was growing up. And I followed Steve's career right through to his King Biscuit Time era, Black Affair stuff and his numerous soul albums, the best of which came out in January. It's called About the Light, and I recommend you check that one out, as well as his brand new EP that's just came out this week, which is called Coup d'etat. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. So it's either just about to come out, or it's just been released, depending on when you've you've tuned into this show. And it sounds like a completely different uh, direction musically once again which is quite exciting to hear and I'm just also grateful to, to Steve as well he's, he's always been very encouraging to my band the Gyro Babies just little things like playing his own six music he, he invited us to play with it to support him in Edinburgh and just things like shouting us out on Soccer AM which meant our song ended up being on doing goals of the week. And also, it's the only time I've ever, I think in 10 years, ever been mentioned in The Skinny, which is a magazine that focuses on underground music in Glasgow and Edinburgh, really. And I don't think we've ever been mentioned before, but Steve Shouted is out in January as well. And just just for a, for a an artist of his stature to 
to shout us out really did help us get a bit of credibility and shine the light on what we were doing. So I've got a lot of time for Stephen. It's an absolute honour to have him on this podcast. So just before we go to that, I'd like to thank all the Patreons who have been subscribing to the show and put in monthly donations. Physically couldn't do it without you guys. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for for supporting the show. If you do want to support the show, you just go to patreon.com forward slash you call that radio. And you can join the Minced Tatties crew for about £2.40 a month. And there's different tiers if you've got, if you can, you're able to support it financially even more. Uh, every single penny is really appreciated. And if you do subscribe, we've got some big plans for you. We've got some big plans for some bonus material, some raffles, some discounts. If you subscribe, you'll get a message in your Patreon. But if you can't afford to subscribe, then don't worry, the show will remain free. Check out the previous episodes. There's quite a lot up there now. And if, if you, you still want to support the show, but you can't afford to subscribe, then just maybe leave us a review. That's, that's apparently, that makes a difference. So we don't really have many reviews on Apple or anything like that. So if you want to give us some a five-star review and some nice words, that'd be brilliant. Or just tell a friend about us or, or share it on your on your social media if you enjoy the show. And then that's how you can help us. Uh, so as one more time, that's patreon.com forward slash you call that radio. Really appreciate the support you've been giving us. Um some big, big plans in the pipeline. I, I'll, I'll be just doing nothing but this for the next few weeks. I've got some interviews in the bag, some big plans ahead. So I hope you join us for the ride. And final shout-outs to Morphemish, who has been mastering the audio in all the episodes so far. He does a brilliant job. Thank you, Hamish. Gyro Babies are playing a 10th year anniversary special show back at Ivory Blacks, where it all began. So 10 years to the day of our very first gig, we are playing the exact same venue. How spooky is that, eh? Tickets on sale now at Skiddle and at Ticket Scotland. If you're a Patreon, you'll get a 20% discount. And there is going to be a big after party, which is under construction at the moment. But that's it for now. It's time for the main event, an interview with the legendary Steve Mason. It's a very interesting chat and I hope you enjoy it. Cheers. I saw a fox after midnight I found Jesus just too late I saw a fox on the hilltop Hunger by the disco and the simple sand I listed cold as a metro True believer was the mood I was in And I
So thank you very much for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. And um, so I just want to ask a few questions, man, and um, we'll just see where it goes. Yeah. But just go back to the beginning. Yeah. So what music did you listen to when you were growing up? And was there a, a song or a band that made you go, yeah, I want to do that? Um, when I, the first record that I ever, um, I wasn't old enough to go and buy a record, but I asked my mum to get me Money, Money, Money by ABBA. And that was, that was the first sort of record that I sort of wanted. I wanted to, I think, I think I asked to get it because I wanted to listen to it again and again and again. You know, I didn't want to wait for, Top of the Pops to come on again. I wanted to hear it before that happened, you know. Yeah. So I think that was the first time that I really kind of connected with with pop music and with a melody. And I, I sort of, I think I got pop music really, really early on. I, don't, I can't remember how old I would have been, probably about six or seven, maybe, something like that, maybe, or maybe five, I don't know. Um, but then the first record I bought myself was... Kings of the Wild Frontier, Adam and the Ants single, and um, and that so that really felt like my thing, you know, because I'd gone out and bought it with my money, and it was and it was it was obviously really different at the time, really different from ABBA. It was like um, much more kind of. I mean, it sounds crazy to say it now, but when you're a kid, it, it kind of felt a bit dangerous and edgy and like it was exciting you know because you didn't really understand at that age you didn't really understand what it was all about or anything like that and then slowly after that I kind of actually not that slowly quite quickly after that I discovered punk um because once I'd started reading about Adam and the Ants and the early you know the fact that they'd been a punk band and well they kind of were a punk band when they started um and then there was in the in the house. There was always an acoustic guitar. It only really had about sort of three or four strings or whatever. But and nobody really played it. It was my mom's, but she never played it. I don't know why she had it, but it was always kind of sitting there. So one day I picked it up and I managed to 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 play just on one string. Um, Anarchy in the UK, the Sex Pistols um, track, and I suppose that kind of really hit me like a ton of bricks that you could sit at home and and pick out that melody and I could actually play that melody. And um and I'd never picked up a guitar before, but I I sort of I realized I must have had an aptitude for sort of just working out a melody. Um or just, you know, just working out some something somebody else has, has written just on one string. But it really suddenly suddenly I could sit in my room and and make music and fair enough it was somebody else's song but it was still that was a really exciting realization for me that that you could play these things you know you, yeah. it wasn't like listening to wagner or something like that or 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 even abba you know which seemed much more complicated this was really simple stuff that, yeah. that even a, even a an eight nine year old boy could play and that was really fucking exciting yeah, it's weird that something similar happened to me. I'd, I was uh, grounded and my dad had an acoustic guitar. Yeah, yeah. I remember picking out uh, Jesus and the Mary Chain, cracking up yeah. the slime from yeah. that acoustic guitar. Yeah. I had that same moment where I thought, yeah. 
I was going to be a bass guitarist. I don't think I can really play anything else apart from that since. But, <laughs> but, but, but it was that, that exact same feeling. I just it, it was amazing. So was it, when, when did you start taking the the being a musician seriously? Well, I mean, <clears throat> I was in when I was at primary. So all that stuff that I've just told you obviously happened at primary school, and me. And we got me and a, me and a mate of mine um, who is actually James James Yorkston. I was at primary school with James Yorkston, and me and him got really into the punk thing. You know, like there was it was all over by then. This is like nineteen eighty, you know, nineteen eighty one. Um, so it was all over by then. But you, there was a record shop in St Andrews, and we used to go in and order records there. So the first punk record I ever um, sort of. Uh, ordered was actually um oh bondage up yours by x-ray specs and i loved that because it was there was something there's something about the fact that it was a woman singing that made it even more exciting i don't really know what it was i think it's because it felt even more dangerous that it felt it, it was a it was i can't really explain it i think i, I guess because women uh, up to that point in the little experience I'd had of making music, it was mostly men that had been doing it. And I guess you always, certainly at that time, you always think of a, 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 a think of a men as making music. And the fact that there was, there was, it was a woman that was singing on on that. And then I discovered Susie and the Banshees, and it was I don't know why it was more exciting. But so we formed a little band at primary school when all this was going on, I and mean, we when nothing happened. We basically formed a band. We drew about seven seven album covers and then the manager ran, ran off with the money basically <laughs> like, so everybody, everybody paid what's that nothing much has changed then no man no man so everybody paid 20p to be in the band and the fucking manager he went off to the sweet shop one day and never come back with the money, the money did, did he end up doing well did you ever did you ever hear what happened to him <laughs> yeah he ended up uh, he's actually a massive guy in TV yeah yeah yeah. So anyway, so then I went to secondary school, and by that point, I'd actually, I'd, I wasn't really. My first instrument really has always been the drums. Like when I when I was listening to Adam and the Ants and all that, I got, I wanted, I got really into the drum thing because they had two drummers, and I got really into that. And so I wanted a drum kit, but mom, I, we couldn't get one. So my mom got me some drumsticks. So what I used to do was arrange the pillows on the bed and, um play the drums like that and then eventually when i was about probably 14 eventually because because i because so i'd been playing drums with the drumsticks by that point for about three or four years at least she thought she sort of gave in she thought right we'll get him a little kit so they got me this little kit for about 15 quid and um and i and i just played it all all the time so there was a band at school and they wanted to play do, do you know it's like a mid '60s American surf track called "Wipeout" by the Safaris? Do you know that? I don't know often the name it's of it. A, it's an instrumental. It's like there's a lot of drums in it. Um, it's it's mainly drums. Um, and they wanted to play that song, and I could play it. Um, but the drummer they had couldn't play it. So then I got a taste of the ruthlessness of rock and roll, and when they booted the drummer out and got me in because I could I could play this song. So that band we actually did a gig with that band there was there was a big there was a big local band thing at the younger hall and um and we were asked to play and there was some really sort of locally some quite serious bands there and then us 
and and we were just a bunch of kids, you know, and we had a we had a, a tea chest bass, which is like a, a double bass made out of an old tea chest and all that. And and uh so that band ended up kind of morphing slowly over a couple of years into a really, really decent rockabilly band. Um by that point it was just three of us. There was my mate John Gibbs on double bass, a guy called um Keith uh Oh, I can't remember his surname. Keith Douglas on on guitar, and I was on drums. And by that point, we were actually pretty good. We were we were really good. Keith, in particular, was a really great rockabilly guitarist. So anyway, but we started getting gigs like in pubs and 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 and, and at little festivals and all that. And it so it actually got to the point where our mums and dads said they put a stop to it because we were playing three or four nights a week. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and getting paid properly. You know, we were we were earning at some points we were earning like two hundred pound a week. You know, which and at that time that was like a fucking king's ransom, man. I mean, I didn't have any idea what to do with that amount of money. Two hundred pounds a week, even at this time, is not bad. Going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, back then, I mean, it was like you could you could buy the world. It was mental. So anyway, they put a stop to that because it was just we had obviously had O grades and all that other exam stuff going on, and we were just playing all the time and 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 playing in pubs, and they didn't like that, you know, because we were only fifteen or what. So anyway, um, that was the first. I guess, I guess, in a way, that was the first. I mean, we took that really. It depends what you mean by seriously. You, you take, as you know, Mark. You take every band that you're in really, really seriously. But I guess um, the next after that, after that band, um, I, 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 I left school and started working um, in a, in William Lowe supermarket, which I don't think exists anymore, and. And by that point, I was a mod. So I was traveling to Edinburgh and Glasgow and a few other places to go to soul nights and R&B nights and all that kind of stuff. So I don't know how this, there was a, and there was a mod band in Edinburgh at that time called The Second Generation. And somehow, I don't know how, they heard that I was a really good drummer. And Again, they they were halfway through recording their album in a studio, and um, they gave me a call and said that their drummer had quit halfway through, and would I go and do it? And I couldn't fucking believe it. I was being asked to play on a real record, a real fucking album. I just couldn't believe it. And I went ran. I put the phone down, ran through the kitchen, and told my mom. And she said, she goes. Don't be stupid. <laughs> In that classic mum way, you know. So, um, so yeah, that was pretty serious because because obviously we we did an album. I mean, they were crap, you know. The band, but the band was crap, and the songs were no good, and it was all it was. You know, looking back, it was all a bit embarrassing, but it's all part of a greater journey, you know. And we ended up doing two tours of Europe. So I was actually like two, at the age of by this point, I think I was seventeen. I was touring Europe in the back of a transit van with with these guys, um, you know. Uh, and at that age, you just don't care, you know. You don't care, and there's it was just I had the best, I had the time of my life, man. The time yeah. of my life, yeah, it was amazing. Yeah, good stuff. Do you remember any? So, so from going from drummer to yeah. To, been a this were you doing backing vocals or anything? Or did you really no, just, no, nothing at all like that. I was just hardcore. Hardcore into the drums. That's all I was interested in, you know. Were you writing lyrics, even like just? No, no, nothing like that. No, nothing like that. Because 
the thing is, I guess, I guess, because I'm I'm middle class, right? I'm total middle class. My upbringing was complete middle class, but. I always hung around with all the working class kids at school because they always had the best clothes and the best music. They always knew, they were always, they were always totally knew what was going on. So that was my crowd. That's who I hung around with. And so by the time I'd left school, I was a total disappointment to my parents because they wanted me to, they, they wanted me to be, I mean, I fuck knows what they wanted me to be like a, a lawyer or something really big, you know, but, I hated school. I was completely unacademic. I was only interested in music and clothes. And so by the time I left school, I was on a YTS scheme working at Willie Lowe's. Basically, they sort of washed their hands of me. So, and and I'd been made to feel pretty... I, I, I knew that they'd given up on me. So I felt like I was stupid. I, I didn't feel... I felt like I disappointed them and I felt stupid. I felt like they didn't care about me. By this point, my sister's doing really, really well at school. So all the focus is on her. So in a way, you kind of that affects you, obviously. But in another way, it's like, well, nobody gives a shit what I do anymore. So I can do what I can do what I want, you know, and, and it's like no one cares. So really, but the crowd that I was hanging around with by that point, everyone was into glue and the football casual thing had kicked in. So there was a lot of fighting. And um, and all that. So the idea of writing lyrics and and anything connected with bearing your soul or talking about feelings and like that, it was there was just it was just no way. It, there was just no way that that was even you know you would have got you would have got a kick in straight away <laughs> if you'd mentioned anything like that. So that was never. And I guess as a drummer as well, it was really kind of. It wasn't. It wasn't on my radar. It wasn't on my radar at all. And then, and then I stopped making music. You know, I became a car mechanic. I was a car mechanic for about four years. And and but during the time when I was a car mechanic, the house music acid house thing happened. And so I started going through Edinburgh every weekend and going to raves and and all that stuff. And that's when I started to bump into guys who'd been at the same school as me in St Andrews, but a year or a couple of years below me. And that was Gordon Anderson and John McLean. And, and they were both at art college, you know, and Gordon, Gordon was a working class kid, you know? So when I started to talk to, I started, you know, talking to them, well, they were talking to me about what they were doing about art and about paintings and about poetry, about, you know, Walt Whitman and, and Sigmar Polk and, and Jackson Pollock and, and a million other people. And, and and I thought, well, these guys are these guys are all right. These these guys are, you know, it took me a while to get my head around the fact that that we could talk about this stuff. It was a strange thing, Mark. You know, I guess it was such a no-no, you know, in the environment that I'd grown up in, in my social environment, anyway. You know, um, and and in my family, were never. I mean, my mom. My mom paints. You know, she she is a painter. She went to art college in Newcastle in the sixties and all that, but. She stopped all that when she got pregnant with me and never really did it again until much later on. So there was no talk of anything like that at home. My dad was very much, he was working all the time. So the idea of having any sort of artistic or intellectual discussion was never was never really on the table. So then 
so these guys, so John and Gordon really, and there was another guy called Sean McCluskey, who I didn't know, but they were at college with. These guys were talking about this stuff and taking me to art exhibitions and, and lending me books, you know, and, uh, and it was just like the, the, my whole world just went from being this very narrow, like looking through a pinhole camera to suddenly being like in panoramic view and that's when you know going to an art gallery with with a painter or with an artist when you're not an artist is a really different thing because they can show you what the artist is trying to convey to you they can say why that's there why they used this particular medium whatever it might be and show you how it connects with other things and also how it sits within history within the history of art and that's really fucking exciting and you start to think about art you start to think about just that word art and you start to think, well, music's art, you know, and yeah. I like music and I make music. Maybe I'm a fucking artist. You yeah. Know? And that's really it, exciting. It took me a, for a, a long time to get my head around that I was a, I could yeah. be an artist, even yeah. though I'd been in a band for a while. And yeah. also sort of tying in with what you were saying about um, lyrics. I mean, when I wrote lyrics, it was, it was for myself. It was just a thing that I did. But yeah. So when did you, when did you start doing that then? So I was doing that, I was doing that at school. But yeah. obviously, it wasn't like I, I would show my friends or anything. Yeah, yeah. I remember one time, uh, one of my friends, Brendan, who actually were and the few people I still talk to from school, he's, uh, yeah. he found a bag of lyrics and he was like, what is this? And he was, I was terrified. I took wow, wow. So it back off him. And yeah. it was a good maybe, yeah, it was a, yeah, probably 24 before. Yeah. Uh, so just... Um, just down to a lot of bereavements and stuff like that. I just went, yeah. stop. I just lost it. I just got fearless and just went, yeah. what's the worst that can happen kind of thing? Yeah, that's that. You know what? That's the thing what happened to me. I suddenly, I, I suddenly got fearless. And I suddenly, because what I realized was, what I, and it was hanging around with these guys, especially Gordon. What I realized was the people, the guys that I've been hanging around with who were, you know, the, the local tough guys, the, you know, the fighting and fucking all that stuff. These guys, they were the weak ones. They were the ones that were scared. The ones that were standing up and making art and saying to the world, this is how I feel. That is, if that's not brave, I don't know what the fuck is. And I re and once I realized that, I thought, fuck yeah, this is right. It's actually fucking dangerous and scary to let people know how you're feeling. And there was a real excitement for me about that, you know. And once you realise that you're the fucking, you're the strong one, and that fearlessness is 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 a, is a really important thing because once you get it, it never really leaves you. And it's something that I've always thrived on. I've I've loved I've loved singing my most kind of honest, heart wrenching songs. I, I I love recording them. I love it when I've written them and it's affected me when I've written them. I, I know you, you must get this as well yourself because I've listened to a lot of stuff you've done. You know that when you've produced something that is totally pure, there's no filter on it whatsoever. You haven't changed any words to think, well, that's a bit, maybe that's a bit, you know, I'm being too honest there or I'm letting people in too much. Yeah. I've always thought, I want to let them, I want to, I want them to fucking open me up and have a good fucking, you know, root around in there. Yeah. And there's, and I've always loved that when you, when you have that moment and it's just you and a bit of, and a bit of paper or a four track or a laptop, whatever it is you've recorded on or, and there's just that moment where it's you and the piece of, and, and the song. 
and it's a really special thing to have created that, isn't it? So, so when did what came next? Was it guitar or? Yeah. So basically, what happened was me, me and Gordon. Um, what happened? I think, I think I realised that Gordon had was writing songs. Um, so and he played me a few of them, and I thought, fucking hell, this guy's really fucking good. Uh, so we we sort of started our little journey together where, where we 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 ended up we watched a documentary on the making of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Heart Squad Band and what we realized was that that was recorded at the time when that was recorded in 67 or whatever it was the EMI studio it only had a four it only had a four track tape machine so we knew that that we could if we if we got the money together we could go and buy a four track. It's not obviously not as good quality, but it's still a four track machine. And we thought, well, if if they've done Sergeant Peppers on a four track, we could do something on a four track, you know. So anyway, I um, I think I think by this I can't remember, I can't remember at what point I can't remember if I was on the door by this point. I, I just can't remember. But anyway, I managed to get the money together to get a four track. So we got this four track. He had a an effects unit called an Elisa's Quadroverb, and I had my drum kit, and he had a guitar and a little pra- an electric guitar and a little practice amp, and um, so we started we started doing stuff, and then he was really because of the Beatles thing, you know we wanted to do some backing vocals, so I was really really shy about my voice. It was again it was that thing of it was a bit of a hangover from you know, my previous kind of life where you were embarrassed and you thought it was a bit, a bit kind of, if not effeminate, but a bit kind of um, weak to sing, you know, like, it was... so anyway, he really helped me get over that. You know, he really helped me get over that thing. And we used to just, we used to just sort of do these things where we just shout at each other and scream and, and just get it all out, you know, and then we'd try and do a vocal and he really, he really, gave me my voice really you really helped me realize that i could i could sing you know so anyway we started doing that and then and then again i started I, he started teaching me sort of bits on the guitar and i started you know trying to learn the guitar myself and trying to, i started experimenting with songwriting and stuff like that but at, at that point you know but at that point i was you've got to understand that gordon was like really um really talented really early on you know and he and he'd also heard a lot more music than I had. He was listening. I mean, he'd heard things like Chris Christopherson and uh, and Bob and Bob Dylan. And I knew who Bob Dylan was, but I was I used to go through like I was into punk, and then I was into what the hell was into after that. Then I was like a b boy for a while. After that, I was really into electro in like eighty eighty three eighty four. And so when and when I was listening to those things, that's all I was listening to. So I had very I'd go through, so I knew a lot about music, but within quite narrow spectrums. And things like Chris Christopherson and Bob Dylan, I just thought that was like your dad's music. But he kind of showed me that again, these things were actually really amazing and really clever. There's a Chris Christopherson song that goes uh, some like. Um, I woke up in the morning and put on my cleanest, dirty shirt. I thought that was a fucking genius line, you know, really funny and clever. And you were sort of, so anyway, we, we, we started kind of just 
doing stuff together and, and singing. And, and that was kind of, that became a full-time thing for me and him in St. Andrews at that point. I'd be around at his house or he'd be around at mine. And we were recording stuff all the time. And after we'd finished recording, we'd just lie on our backs in one of our bedrooms and listen to what we'd done. And that's all we wanted to hear. All we wanted to hear was what we'd done. It was because it was, we were getting what was in us out, you know? And, and when you're in that mood, that's all you want to hear. You don't want to hear anyone else's music, you know? And I guess for the first time, I guess I was creating something that I was a big part of. And that was really exciting as well. So we, I learned a lot during that, that little period, you know? Right. And so when did the beta band sort of take off? Yeah. So, um, I had, during that time I'm talking about with Gordon, I had a girlfriend in Glasgow and she, um, was moving to London to, to do, um, to, to go to nursing college. And by this point I'd quit being a car mechanic and I had, uh, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot more to these stories, but uh, there's no point in going into it. So anyway, um, at that point, I thought I need. To, me and Gordon had tried to get a band together in St Andrews. It wasn't fucking happening. Everyone was a lot older than us, and they were all on totally different wavelengths. So I thought, you know, I'm going to go to London with my girlfriend, with Sam, and um, and see what happens, and try and get, try and do something, try and you know. I didn't I'd seen all these local bands and they were all they were all obsessed with being big in St Andrews and big in Fife and all that and I just thought that just seemed so nothing to me. I never wanted I never wanted that. I wanted to be as big I mean it sounds like a cliche now because Oasis used to just use that phrase as a broken record, but I really did what me and Gordon wanted to be we saw ourselves as the next line of McCartney and we wanted to be as big as the Beatles. So I thought, forget hanging around in these diddy little towns. Let's go out into Go, go, let's go to the source. So anyway, I went down there. He didn't come first for ages. Um, and then eventually he came down. A lot of craziness happened. By this point, I was suffering 
from mental problems, to be honest. And he was in a similar way, not good, you know. And it kind of became this sort of whirlpool. Mine and his relationship became kind of unhealthy. We were sort of just, we were just two madmen, really, you know. Was it, um, was, it, was, it was it drinking drugs and just? Or just... Um, I think b- before we'd moved down to... Um, London, we'd been doing a lot of mushrooms. And also before that, when I was going to the raves in 89, 90, I'd done a lot of, an awful lot of cheap speed, you know. Yeah. And that, that takes its toll on your fucking mental health. And acid, you know. And um, and also my parents split up when I was 19, which I think was about 1988. Or no, it was about 1990. And that had actually, even though I was 19 or whatever, it had a big effect on me, a really big effect. And I think... Um, I was just a bit of a mess. I was a bit of a mess, to be honest. And so, anyway, um, he went. He had a lot of. He he was a lot worse than me. He was he was kind of schizophrenic. He was hearing voices and blah blah blah. So he went back to Scotland. So I said to him, "Look, you know, go back, try and get better." And when when I, I had so much confidence back then, Mark. It was just mental. I knew, I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. I just, and I was not, never going to stop until it happened. So I said, when, when it happens, I'll call you. Come back down. I'm, 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 I'm get on with it. So anyway, to cut a long story short, by ninety five, uh, by ninety five, ninety six, me and Gordon, me and John and Robin were living together in Shepherd's Bush. John bought a sampler. I had my acoustic guitar. I'd been I'd written songs by this point. I'd written "Dry the Rain" and a few other songs, and um, and so John got a sampler. I had my four track, and we started putting together. He, John started putting together beats for my songs, and the first one that we worked on was "Dry the Rain." So, and then we had another track that me and Gordon had done a demo of. So we and then and then me and Robin did a track called Shepherd's Dub, which I don't think really ever came out, but it was a track called Shepherd's Dub. Um, and so we had this little demo thing. And by this point, I was a motorcycle courier in London. So, and I was delivering to all the, all the record labels. So, That's I, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're going, you know, you're delivering on a daily basis to like EMI, you know, to um, Virgin Records, to Chrysalis, to Polydor, to food records up in um, up in Camden, and also to Heavenly, uh, who were in they were in Wardour Street at that time, and it was so exciting to go to these fucking places and just see, you know, it was, it was they were like fortresses, you know, it was like impregnable impregnable fortresses that you that you weren't allowed in, you couldn't get in, but I was a courier, so you'd go in with a package for blah blah blah, and they'd say I take it up to you know, floor four or whatever it was. So you got to go in the lift, see all these gold records all over the wall, up in the lift, you know, and see people at work there. You might see a fucking pop star or whatever it was. And I, it was just, and by this point I'd started carrying around, cause, so we'd made a demo tape, basically a three-track demo tape. I'd started carrying these tapes around in my bag, and but I wasn't really sure what what to do with them, how to get them to people so anyway it turned out that i just what i ended up doing was i started fake delivering um uh demo tapes so i'd i'd go out and buy a jiffy bag and i'd and i'd put a tape in it 
and I knew some of the names of the people at these labels now. So I'd write the name on it, and then I'd go and deliver them, like as if it was a real delivery, but it wasn't. It was just me <laughs> turning up, fucking handing out demo tapes. So, so I did that at Food. I did it at Heavenly, um, and I think I did it at Polydor as well. Um, I subsequently found out that Heavenly threw it in the bin because I'd spelled because we were so I put the address of where we were living on 98 Devonport Road Shepherd's Bush but I spelled shepherds wrong so they they right so they threw it in the bin and they told me that because they came to like some really early beta band gigs wanting to sign us and I said I fucking I sent you a demo tape they said I was threw it in the bin because and they were so apologetic you know they couldn't believe they'd done it like I think I think the guy got fired that had fucking <laughs> in the bin you know so anyway um we, me and John were DJing. He, John McLean was still at art college at this point, and we'd started. We would DJ there every Thursday night, me and him, um, doing like jungle and dub sets, dub reggae and jungle. So we had these two girls that we knew. And one of them had one of them. Her mate turned up. This guy called Phil, and he was a manager, band manager. So I got talking to him, and he said, "I'm going into Parlophone tomorrow to see this A and R guy about a band." I said, I said, fucking, I had tapes on me, obviously. So I said to him, fucking take this in, play it to him. You know, because I realized that if you could, because I never heard anything about these tapes that I'd sent in. But what I realized was you had to get somebody in for a meeting. You had to go for a meeting with these people. You had to sit there and listen to it with them. That's what you had to do. You couldn't just send the tape in because they, they don't really, they've got so much stuff they don't listen to. It. So anyway, this guy went in, he played the demo, and we got called in for a meeting. And the weird thing is, to Parlophone Records, right? You know, the, which was, and because me and Gordon were so obsessed with the Beatles, like, you've got, we got called into the label that the Beatles were on. I couldn't fucking believe it. But at the same time, as I say, I was so confident. I knew it was going to happen. I knew it was going to happen. So that's when, you know, that's when the shit really hit the fan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you've got that, there's a lyric that I remember you doing in the later stuff was the, the beat a band rap. Yeah. And it's drinking champagne at EMI, the irony almost made us cry. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I knew that we were we were doing a deal. I knew that we were doing the deal, you know, the deal with the, the capitalist deal, you know. And but and I nearly didn't sign that deal. But that but by that point, we had a little manager guy. By the time it got round to us signing the deal, so by this point, we'd put out Champion Versions EP, and we'd. And after we got, after we did that, and it was like it, it was all kicking off for us. They signed, they wanted to sign us for a four or five album deal. So we had a little manager at that point, and we were we were in a pub opposite EMI, waiting to go in and sign this deal. And I nearly didn't go in and do it. I was really, I was in, I was really torn about whether to do it or not. Um, and I had a mobile phone by this point, and I got I got a call from the job center. And the job centre said, you had a job interview today at McDonald's, uh, sorry, Burger King in uh, Leicester Square, and you haven't turned up, so we're cancelling your doll. And I thought, man, I've got to fucking do this. This is just a joke. Get in, get the fucking money off them and make some amazing art, you know? Yeah. And really, that's what we did, you know? We signed for like 150 grand on the record side, and we also signed to EMI Publishing, which was another 150 grand. And so we put ourselves on a wage and we never wasted not one penny of that money. Everything went 
into the band and into the art. None of us bought houses, which is why when the band finished, we had one month's money left in the bank and that was it. I basically, the only thing I left the beta band was, the only thing I left the beta band with was the equipment that I bought when I was in the band, which was a couple of acoustic guitars, an electric guitar, a drum kit and an amplifier. And that, and a month's rent and, and a month's wages. That's what I left the band with, you know. And we'd signed for like 300 grand, you know. Um, and I, I don't, I don't, I'm not, I'm proud of that, Mark. You know, I'm proud of that. I mean, obviously at times, I mean, now I've got a family and all that. And there's times when there's some of the decisions we made in the band, or I made in the band, you know, to do with using our music from, for adverts and stuff like that. I couldn't make those decisions now. But at the time, you know, it was the right thing to do. It was the right thing to do. We were, I saw the beta band as a punk band. I saw us as the Sex Pistols, except we were really doing it. You know, it wasn't, yeah. you know, the Sex Pistols, they, they took fucking, you know, some money off a couple of record labels. They made one album and then they fucking exploded. Yeah. And I, you know, I actually wanted to take, and, and they didn't see any of that money. You know, they didn't see any of that money. They didn't get a chance to turn any of that money really into anything. But I wanted to take that money. I wanted to take these fucking capitalist pigs that have been screwing artists over for by that point for like 50 years or whatever it was i wanted to take to take that money and turn it into some art i didn't want a fucking sports car i didn't want a house i didn't want a coke habit i didn't want any of that shit i didn't even want to be a rock star i really didn't i don't care about being famous that's the fucking mugs what i wanted to do was be an artist and i was and we had the money to do it you know and that was that was the most amazing thing about the band yeah i'm sure i mean you think we talk i mean taking the 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 money for certain adverts. I mean, there's certain bands that that by doing it, it can actually just ruin the entire career. So even though it seems like an easy money, yeah. there's certain things that there's certain things that you can't do. I mean, I do a, a, the first one that kind of springs to mind is like when Hurricane Number One did the Sun advert one, and for a band right. that's got indie credentials, yeah. there's, just, there's certain things that's a no-no. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, I was, I was talking to. It was the first time I was actually supposed to interview. I interviewed Jake from Alabama Three, right? Uh, R.I.P. Obviously to Jake, but yeah. he, he was, um, you know, he, he got he got a lucky one with the, the Sopranos because that's yeah. not selling out. That's just really cool, you know. You're, yeah, you're being yeah. part of art. Um, yeah. But you know, if you if you'd done, you know, if you, I think nowadays everyone agrees that uh, doing the odd advert and stuff is just part is part of the yeah. deal yeah. because it's changed so much. Uh, but yeah, there's there's certain things. I think there's got to be certain lines, you know, where like you can't really be cool to a McDonald's advert or you know things. Well, do like- you know what I realised, Mark? And I'm sure you, I'm sure you've come to this conclusion yourself. What I realised is selling out is not something you do in public. It's something you do in your head. We all we all know our our little boundaries, the things that we have always told ourselves that we won't do. Yeah, and. And, and it's when you do those things, and it could be anything, you know, it could be anything. It couldn't be something as dramatic as doing a McDonald's advert. It could be something much smaller than that. And you know yourself when you've when you've sold when you've sold yourself out, you know. And, and as I say, I I I start I came to the conclusion that it really is something you do internally, you know. You make that decision, and what what happens after that potentially is the is the more public thing, depending on what it is. Well, but there's a good example of what I think you did. Well, I don't know how much you'd have seen it, but mm. uh, doing the high fidelity thing, which I'd imagine would have been quite mm. 
yeah. quite a big, a big life-changing thing because, mm. you know, everybody seems to know that part of the film. Was that mm. your decision or was that...? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, part, part of the reason... We ended up getting dropped from EMI Publishing because we refused to do almost everything. Yeah, this um, is ideal for the publisher who's trying to... Yeah, well, exactly. There was there was a couple of really big things in particular. There was a, there was an Oldsmobile car advert in America where they wanted to pay us a million dollars. And then it would be another half million if it went up into Canada, which was quite likely if they, if they decided to use the same advert in Canada. So it would be about $1.5 million. And by that point, we had an American manager. And he said this to me. He was so excited when he called me and told me. He, he was saying he was going to change my life. And I said, no. I said, no, I don't want to do it. It's not happening. And he couldn't believe it. I mean, the Americans have always had a very different relationship with money and a relationship with art and commerce. I think than the British have. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I think we I think we're slowly going that way more. We're getting more Americanized for things like that. But definitely. Yeah, but I think you're talking about you know nineties, late nineties, early two thousands. It what you could definitely see a massive difference. And yeah, the it was it was still regarded as selling out then. But now, as you say, it's just part of the, it's part of the it's part of the landscape. It really it's not seen as anything now. I mean, I remember seeing. You know, a Django Django did an advert, a BT advert. You know, and um, they've done, they've done a few things like that. You know, and and I guess you know they. I mean, they. Were, I've always seen them as like the beta band, little brothers, and, and you know, and they they really sort of um, you know they obviously we were a big inspiration to them, and I suppose it kind of broke my heart a little bit that they didn't take <laughs> they didn't take the not selling out part, but yeah. I guess for them. It wasn't selling out, you know. It wasn't selling out, and they're far. They're so much more successful than we ever were, you know. I mean, they're, you know, they're they're a real serious band, you know. They play all over the all over the world, and uh, they're very successful. And we were just this little blip. We were like the we were like the last. We were like the last great, exciting thing that managed to get almost into the mainstream. Yeah, um, was a lot. Was a lot of bands at that time. I mean, is there any other bands you can think of that were around about the same era as you? That were, that were maybe just didn't make it or. Um, well, the Super Fair Animals, but I guess they kind of they were they were bigger than us again, and certainly, I mean, they 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 never finished really. I mean, they still they still do bits and bobs now, but I mean, um, I think it's actually funny you mention them. I think that they were Super Fair Animals and Beat a Band were two of my favourites growing up because what. Mm. It seemed to show to me, and it's as an example I've shown to other band members that I've had in the past that are maybe taking themselves a little bit too seriously. As yeah. they still make serious music and serious songs, but you can also have a bit of fun with it, and maybe yeah. not not take yourself too seriously, even though you're taking your music seriously. Absolutely, yeah, it's, it's yeah, absolutely, yeah, it's really important. I mean, I think to be to be self-effacing, you know. I mean, I I always had a lot of confidence. I always knew. I always knew, I always felt what I was doing was better than fucking anyone else. But I was sick to the back teeth of hearing Oasis and the Verve sitting in interviews talking about how they were the new Beatles and, and talking about how they were, you know, the kings of the fucking universe. And I thought, you're not. You're just another fucking white boy with a fucking guitar regurgitating what's been done a million times before. I mean, the Verve were like head and shoulders above Oasis, but Oasis for me was like, have you ever seen that film Human Centipede? Yes. 
Well, for me, Oasis was yeah, a human centerpiece. Watching it. What's that? I started watching it, but it yeah, was, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you, but you get the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's grim, man. But you get the idea. And yeah. for me, Oasis was a bit where the centipede was joined up into a circle, and it's basically just regurgitating itself. That was when art in music for me, in mainstream music for me, stopped. I think them and Coldplay, you know, they happened about the same time, you know, roughly. Yeah. You know, that's when it kind of stopped. And and for me, we were just a massive reaction to that. You know, it was at that point, journalists, you know, and that, I think that's why journalists didn't like interviewing us because we were difficult, but we wanted to be interviewed. We took what we did very seriously, you know. Did, true or false, did you tell the NME that your album was shit and no one should buy it? Well, uh, well, you, you you don't have to ask me that. You just go, just Google it, man. It was, the front, it was on the front cover of the enemy. <laughs> yeah, but I know the journalists sometimes uh, don't don't tell the truth. So no, no, no. That was uh, very true. Yeah, that was that was a kind of perfect storm. Really, that was that was a really difficult time. Right, that was a really difficult time. I was suffering madly by that point. I was suffering from depression, agoraphobia. I was in a total. I was virtually a basket case. It was a fucking nightmare. It was a nightmare for the for the other three guys in the band. And um, and what we needed at that point was strong management, really strong management. And one of the things, one of the big problems the Beatty band had, and one of the reasons why we probably finished, was because we never had good management. We never had anyone strong holding it together and 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 looking after us as people, especially me. And that's that was a big problem for us. You it, know, seems was, be, it seems to be a, a massive problem in the music industry in general. Yeah, yeah, it happened over and over again. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you're I, just sort of thrown to the lines because there's so many. I mean, I don't know if this is true. Now, it's it's. I mean, back in the '90s when we got signed, the industry was, was full of nut jobs. Everybody was a nut job. Everybody was suffering from some sort of madness, whether it was. Whether it was, you know, a coke habit or, um, you know, alcohol or crack or fucking heroin or, or just, just, just a general day to day mad person, it, it was like a refuge for that, you know. All the all the nutters. If you couldn't get a job anywhere else, you ended up in the music industry, you know. And it's not really like that now. So, people like me, we didn't really stand out, you know, because there was a lot of people like that, you know. And so it's difficult, but you need, you do. People need help, you know. I mean, everybody needs help. I mean, when I was a car mechanic, I needed fucking mental help, you know. <laughs> but well, I suppose that's the thing is um, when you've got things like depression and uh, and agoraphobia, things like that, mm. and most people can usually either take some time off work or yeah, just or just go into themselves a bit and have that space. But if you're having to go out on stage to thousands of people and you can't stop the machine, it's there's there's not really. You know, you can't just say, you can't really just pause it, can you? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so I've, I've, I've still never cancelled a gig ever. Never once just went, no, I've just got to do it. So I think if I can yeah. I think I, 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 think, I, I had yeah. jobs in call centres uh, many, many years ago. And I always, if I started a job that I was quite enjoying, if I took that one sickie, I would end up, my attendance would go down because I would really quite enjoy the sickie. Yeah. Um, more than working, if you know what I mean. Yeah. No, I mean, I've always had a very, very strong work ethic. You know, I never, you see a lot of bands now. My, my wife now, when, when, we, when we met, she was friends with a lot of bands in London and a lot of younger bands, you know. And some of them got signed. And, and what, what happened when they got signed was 
they'd almost immediately all get fucking drug habits and become alcoholics because they thought that when you get signed, that's when you become a rock star. And it's like, mate, that's when the fucking hard work begins, you know? Someone's yeah. taken enough interest in you to, to give you some money so you can do your art for a living, and you just have to get a fucking heroin habit. Habit. Yeah. You know, so I'm 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 lucky like that. I, I, I've always had a really strong work ethic, you know, and and I'm I'm so glad, you know, I'm so glad because it could have. I mean, I, if I hadn't have had a strong work ethic, I'd, I'd God knows what I'd be now. I'd be a fucking bin man. Yeah. Well, I mean, you did you after beat a band, <clears throat> you that you you were doing a. Uh, King Biscuit time. I remember seeing you. At, I think that's the first time I met you properly. You were at King Touch doing that. Yeah. Um. And then you were, you were doing the Black Affair stuff as well. Yeah. And then what? Well, what made you go go back to just using your own name? I think. Um, I mean, the King Biscuit time thing got really fucked up because because basically just before the album actually came out. Um, I mean, what had happened to me was the beta band finished, you know, and then I split up with my girlfriend, and and our and my relationship with her had sort of run concurrently with the beta band. So it was about eight years. So suddenly, my, my girlfriend of eight years and the band I'd been in for eight years was finished. Yeah. So that was really, really difficult to deal with because suddenly I had nothing in my life. Um, and everything that I'd kind of, um, everything I'd made up my life was gone. So it was really, really hard. Um, and um, I I sort of, I had a, basically had a massive mental breakdown at that point. I, I was totally suicidal. Um, and I'd been suicidal before, but I'd always, I always knew that it was more of a cry for help than a kind of serious... Um, I'm just gonna close the blind mark one second. Don't oh, worry. Uh -uh. So yeah, so I, I'd always, I'd always felt that they were. It was more of a, like I, I was trying to get someone to help me. I was crying out for help rather than an actual serious suicide attempt. But, but this time around, it was different. You know, I knew I'd had enough. I, I just had enough. I'd had enough. I, I didn't want to deal with myself anymore. I wanted a permanent holiday from my life. So anyway, um, I was really, really lucky. And um, to cut a long story short, I got some really good help and um, and started putting everything back together again. Um, but uh, yeah, the Black Affair thing happened. But you know, I, I wanted, I, I felt that the King Biscuit Time thing was too similar to the Beta Band, and I guess I had a personal. It was a personal thing to me that I wanted to prove to myself that I could exist as as a songwriter and as a musician outside of that band that people didn't think that they were propping me up you know yeah so I did the Black Affair thing which really spectacularly fucking failed um, really it was nobody was really that interested in it I mean there was there was a few problems there was a few problems with it the, the album should have come out a year before but you can say all this crap it's all bullshit really it just it just didn't it didn't connect with anyone really. So um, I'd been making sort of, a, and I was sort of set to 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 make a second Black Affair album. And Richard X, producer called Richard X, who does a lot of sort of electro pop music, he was he was wanting to to produce it. So that it could have been great, but then I just got fucking bored of working with um, 
NPCs and drum machines and synths and all. I just got bored. So I picked up the guitar one day and wrote Boys Outside in a Wanna, the song. And I thought, God, that was that was great, you know? And I just sort of started to love the guitar again. I started to love the acoustic guitar, the fact that you can just sit there, you know, a human being and a guitar, and you can break people's hearts. There's something really exciting about that, you know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot more cathartic. Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and dangerous, in a way, because it's just you. I mean, I've done acoustic gigs when I was supporting Guy Garvey. I was playing in front of two, two and a half thousand people with just an acoustic guitar. And it's, you know, it, the pressure's massive, but it's so exciting, you know? I was actually listening to you did the was it Ghost Inside it was like a dub yeah mm. have you ever thought about doing anything like that again I'd love to but I'd love to do one with Adrian Sherwood actually um, but it's difficult to get them it's difficult to keep going back to Domino asking for money you know because it's you know t- times are as you know times are tough in the music industry and um, you know you've got to think it's difficult. It's such a shame. That's one of the great shames about the way that the music industry is at the moment with the lack of money is that you can't do things like that, you know, because so many, there's so many great unknown records out there, records that weren't big hits, but records that are still really fucking important and it's important that they were made. And that's, that's a great, that's one of the great pities of the fact that there's not much money. Um, but, you know, I mean, in case you have... Just sort of just to start, just um, I've got a, a few questions came in from people earlier on today. Yeah, uh, Woodwin actually just because it sort of fits to that. He says, "How do you feel about the Black Affair album now? Twelve years on, is it hugely different from anything you've done before or since? So, yeah. uh, how do you see it? Or sort of have you have you listened to it recently? Or um, I listened to Japanese Happening the other day, which is a track off it, and I thought it sounded great. It needs an edit, mm-hmm. but it could have been a fucking well. It is. It is 
with a bit of an edit. It's a, it's a, I think it's a brilliant, um, you know, three and a half minute synth pop song. That's a great track, actually, Japanese happening. Um, Do you feel it when you listen back to something after a certain period of time? It doesn't, it's quite easy to be honest, humble, or critical of something because it actually feels like a different person created it. Um, I, I've always been, I mean, going back to the the NME headline, our album's rubbish. I've always been pretty good at being critical of my own stuff. You know, I think you know, you know when something's good. I don't think I don't think it was a rubbish album though. Mm, but it wasn't what it could have been. Yeah, nowhere it was nowhere what it could have been. Um, and the and and the 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 dreams I had for that album. Um, what we ended up producing was never gonna was never gonna meet those those ideals that I had for that record. Um, yeah. But but for many reasons, some of which were out with my control, because I was so deep in it, I was so deep focused in the band, and I was the, don't forget I was the main songwriter. I mean, the thing about the Beta Band was it was supposed to be me and Gordon, and he was a fucking genius songwriter, and so when when the band actually got signed, he he came back for about four weeks, but he was so unwell, he couldn't do it. So when the beat band, you know, when we got going, you know, my best friend, my songwriter, my, my brother was in, in the mental hospital, you know, so you're having to deal with 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 that, you know, and and not just that, but your songwriting part, the guy that was the, the, the genius in the band, had gone, and suddenly it's all on me. I was the only yeah. songwriter in the band, and by that point, I'd only written about four fucking songs. Yeah, and, you know, and you, and and I and I just signed for three hundred thousand pounds. Yeah, so it's a lot of pressure, man. A lot of a lot of pressure. Yeah, it was difficult, yeah. very difficult. And so, come about so now moving on to your your new album. Um, I think well, I think you said roughly to me before when we were down in Brighton that you, you think that you've got every two years is kind of like a good a good amount of time for you to write a new album and how did and I think that now you've, you've encompassed a new sort of band sound to it so how's how's that feeling now? Well it's difficult it's difficult because for, for me I think it's the best record I've ever made I, I think it's an amazing record um, but it didn't do what what was what I expected it to do and what a few people expected it to do so it's difficult because the the lack of success makes you fall out of love with it. But the fact is, like, like um, me and my wife and daughter, my daughter's only two, we, we were up in the Lake District last week and driving there and driving back. Um, one of the... If if my if my daughter's kicking off in the back, because it's like, it's a long way, man. She, you know, it gets boring for a kid. So... If she starts kicking off, my wife puts on um, my album about the light, and, and it just calms her down. And she just she loves listening to it. So I so I had to listen to that album about three or four times um, on the way to and from the Lake District, and and I just thought I just thought God, this is a really fucking good record. I'm I'm I, I'm I'm gutted that it's not that it didn't do what I wanted, but. But the thing is, when you've had... I mean, I've been doing this now, Mark, for uh, like nearly, I don't know, like uh, about 25 years or whatever it is. I've had, a, I've had quite a long career. And 
things change, you know, things change. And there's the, the sort of the zeitgeist now is against people like me. It's against kind of um, men with guitars, you know. Um, so things change, you know, festival lineups, um, you know, they want those to be 50-50 split regardless of, I guess, uh, you know, how good somebody is if, you know, if, if they've got their quarter of men, then you don't get on and they, they, they want, you know, they want to fill up the, 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 the female slots. And that's something that we, we talked about quite controversially in a, a previous podcast. Yeah. And, um, obviously as a, as a promoter as well, I, I put on a lot of gigs and I, I just seen that, I mean, I like the idea behind it, but the idea that, I mean, I, I always do my best to, uh, make sure that there is there, there, there is as many females as, as possible in it, but yeah. it's quite you've just got to be very careful what you say about it without it making making you sound like a mad right wing yeah uh, misogynist. But no, the, I, I don't know where one area when getting in the way of me picking the best running order for my if I'm running a stage at a festival, yeah. I want to pick the best one, and I don't I don't really take uh, the criticism too well because it's like I've got a very limited budget yeah. and just get the best thing. And I think by having a like having a legal agreement where it's only 50-50, then you're going to have situations where um, female bands that are okay yeah. are be taking, uh, you know, it just seems to be the wrong way about it. And I think that it would the way around it is focus on the education because um, I've spoke to people who work in education and music and apparently something changes in, in secondary because beforehand females are really interested in, little girls are interested in, Keyboards, synths, all these yeah. kind of things, yeah. And yeah. then it just for some reason, it's secondary. I think it's obviously there's a lot of society problems in there, right? Yeah. The music yeah. industry itself. Yeah, I think I think if a female artist or a female band are not getting on the bill because they're female, then that is completely wrong. Yeah, completely wrong. Um, I mean, I've never got on the promotion side of it. I've never been a part of that, so I don't know if that happens. But um, but yeah, so that you know, so. You know, and then, uh, you know, radio stations are, are kind of, um, you know, I guess guitar music's kind of seems to be a bit out of fashion at the moment. And I've never really thought of myself as a as a kind of, as a kind of guitar kind of guy. Because I suppose when you think, when I think about that, I think of like dad rock. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, and I, <laughs> and that just makes your skin crawl, you know, because I guess for me, the word dad rock and, that kind of bloke with a guitar cliche. It's yeah. for me, it's always come with certain connotations where it's this kind of white, slightly right wing guy who is sexist, who is kind of um, you know, uh, you know, you're sort of just that that whole cliche, you know, like it's lager louts and all that sort of crap. And and that really isn't me. That's everything I've fought against fucking my whole life, you know? And um so it's um it's 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 yeah, it's it's interesting times, but I just think, I just think everyone should be on their on their own merit, and and there shouldn't be any any form of, of exclusion at all. But it's um, like you say, I think it's I think the problem with that conversation is it's become for, even just having the conversation has become very um, you know uh, problematic because um, there are a very aggressive um you know there's certain people out there that are very aggressive and they're they are they are their favorite things to jump on someone and, and and paint them you know as a 
misogynist, which which is I don't think is helpful at all. And, I, and sometimes it worry sometimes it worries me because I thing is I remember the sort of lad culture of the of the of the nineties, you know, loaded magazine and all that stuff. Yeah. Which which me and my mates all fucking hated. You know, it was just everything that we were against, you know. And it worries me a little bit that this whole thing might end up kicking off something even worse than that. You know, yeah. if if these you know if these fucking bozos Yeah that are out that are out there anyway decide to you know i mean i mean i mean you know how the i mean the right wing in this country they always paint themselves as this kind of marginalized group that are being attacked all the time you know and they're just fighting you know that the english defense league they're fighting for their sort of right just to be english and all this crap but and it's bullshit it's fucking bullshit you know um so i would hate for that to happen at some point as well because the last thing we need is a return to that i just want I mean, I just want pure, pure freedom and pure equality on every level for every living human, you know. Yeah. And who, who doesn't want that, you know, really? Yeah. Well, I think this. Um, I think everybody's just with social media. Everyone's tied into their own little algorithm bubbles now. Yeah. So it's like if you like one thing, it, Facebook or is going to keep feeding you that. Yeah. That that yeah. same thing, and that's why people are are just having these sort of they're in their own extreme bubbles. Yeah, and when someone says something outside of it, it's quite shocking to the other person, and they'll you know get a yeah. And then also, yeah, no, and there's also just trolls just making um, false statements and saying that this is what people are saying, and they're not saying that at all. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. just so much fake news and stuff. But it's definitely interesting times we're in. I mean, would you say that the the new album? I mean, obviously you, you had them um, uh, Monkey Minds and the Double Times. That was very political. Yeah. And the album, I can still hear the the subtleties of of political uh, discourse throughout it, but yeah. it's it's not as obviously as extreme as, as as previous things. Was that was that a, a conscious effort, or uh, were you just trying to find some hope? And uh, obviously now that you've, you've fatherhood as well. I mean, how's fatherhood? Does that is that changed the way that you write and approach this kind of thing? Um, I think uh, I think Monkey Minds and the Devil's Time for me was I kind of drew a line under a lot of my feelings and emotions about politics and about um, capitalism and all the things that divide us and hold us back. I wanted to set out my stall once and for all. It's all there. Everything I feel is all there. But I think what I decided was it can, it can, it can, really affect you all that stuff on a daily basis because if you're constantly thinking about these things these big big subjects um you feel so powerless and so helpless yeah um and to feel like that all the time is really um exhausting yeah so i decided once and for all to set out my my stall and get it all off my chest once and for all and the way I live my life now and the way I live my life, you know, from, from kind of from that point was I'm going to treat everyone that I meet in my life and treat them how I, wanted, how I want to be treated, which is with compassion and love and treat everyone the same. And if I find that if you do that, in the, major, the majority of your life, is all right 
because you're create you're actually creating your own little world, your own little universe. Yeah, and and it might sound selfish, and it might sound like like giving up in a way, but I think the fear is the enemy. Fear is the greatest enemy, and we're just pumped full of fear all the fucking time. Whether it's you know immunizations, you know, or um, Brexit, or the the environment, or whatever it might be, it's just it's just a fear factory, and and um, and when you're afraid, when you're afraid, you don't make sensible decisions ever. Yeah, when you're afraid and you're suffering from anxiety and all these things, you you don't you don't make reasoned judgments at all, and so. I don't really watch the news anymore, Mark. I don't, I don't, if I want to know something that's happening, I'll just go on Twitter and have a look. Um, yeah. And, and, and just take everything with a pinch of salt. But in the main, in the main, I, I just stay away from it. And the fact is that having my daughter um, has really allowed me to do that because obviously, um, you know, she needs to be looked after all the time. So, you know, you're kind of, um, you have a great excuse yeah, as to why you don't know what the fuck's going on. But um, I kind of did, did similar with the, the first Jackal Trades album because at the time I was doing a lot of spoken word satire on on uh, on politics and I was right in there. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Everything, and for that album, Need the Characters, was just yeah. basically an amalgamation of all of that stuff. And then when I made the last Jackal Trades album, which was ve- which was rushed, I mean, I did end up having to do it all in about two weeks. Yeah. And I just kind of, instead, I, I told a kind of psychedelic story of a boy from a scheme. Mm-hmm. And it was a different thing, but I just wanted to mm-hmm. just move away from politics for a change. Yeah. And then when I'm looking at the new Jackal Trades album, I'm going to get a wee bit more of it in, but I'm, I'm going to keep it, more, keep it a bit more fun and upbeat as well. Yeah. I, I, you're totally bang on what you're saying. If you're just if you're just going to let this stuff worry about you all day every day, it's yeah. not going to make you a, a, a happy person. And if you're not a happy person, you're not going to be able to be there for your friends as much. And yeah. And also, how how are you supposed to change the world if you're just fucking miserable all the time? It's not yeah. it's not going to work like that. I just think, I'm mis- as I say, a lot of this is on monkey minds. The thing about um, you know, small changes, small conversations. These are the things that are small interactions on a daily basis. When you smile at the person that serves you in the shop, smile at, smile and say good morning to somebody when they walk past you. I'm, t- I'm telling you, little things like that, they have way more effect than three weeks of, you know, worrying about Brexit and posting on Facebook or Twitter about Brexit and about what, what a cunt Boris Johnson is. Yeah. That is absolutely pointless. Absolutely yeah. pointless, you know. I mean, it makes you might make you feel better for two or three minutes, but it's you're just playing into their hands because you're just you're giving them what, what they want. You're afraid. They want you to be afraid. And yeah. you are afraid, you become afraid. But if you'd say, Fuck that, I'm not engaging in your world. I'm gonna wash my hands of that, I'm gonna go outside and I'm gonna make somebody smile. And it might sound pathetic, it might sound weak, it might sound like a joke, but it's that that is real. That's real. Yeah, absolutely. And um so also in the the context of what's on social media and stuff like that, mm. how, I'm quite interested to how you obviously you have had a long career. So 
Um, what? How do you make the the streaming culture? Is it is it any better or any different than people downloading it for free, or is it? Is there anything good about it? Or, um, I mean, the thing is, it's. I think what it's. I mean, from when I was a kid, at school, youth culture was everything. You you identified. You were identified by what you were, whether you were a mod or a skinhead or a punk or casual or whatever it was you were. And I, I loved that. You know, I loved the fact that there was these different tribes and they're all the different things. And and music was just as much as clothes, music was really important. It was everything, you know. It was every single group, um, every single subculture, every single youth culture had a a, a music that it that it followed, and if you fast forward then to now, and with kids that are the age I was at then, which is I guess between sort of ten and twenty or whatever, it, music is just not as important as it was to us as it is to them. It's something that they consume, you know, while they're doing something else, or it's just one other part of their consumption of culture. Um. And it's difficult. It's very difficult for me to to really say whether that's good or bad. I don't know. I think it's. I think it's sad. I think it's sad that music's not as important. And they all kind of they all look very similar. The kids these days. There's very little. The only group that really stands out is the goths, and you don't really see many of them anymore either. But there seems to be not. I mean, I don't know. What, I mean, I'm fucking. You know, I'm. I'll be nearly, I'll be, I'm 48 now, Mark. I don't know what the fuck those kids are up to. I really don't. But talking to friends of mine who've got kids who are sort of, you know, 16 to 20 or whatever, I know that they just kind of consume music in a really, really different way to what we did. You know, for us, it was, it was live, live or die. For them, they might be into a track for a week and then it's gone and then they're on to the next thing. Um, yeah, it's just quite hard to um, give any band the time. I think it's just a busier world as well. Yeah. We we are constantly got you know, no you're constantly and there's good and bad, it's a double edged sword we you yeah. can keep in contact with everyone. But as a result, it's it's to give to give an album the, the chance that you would, you know, when you're spending fifteen pounds on a CD or whatever, yeah, yeah. which is that which is my, my culture growing up, you would take a risk on a couple of bands that you maybe heard a song or you maybe read about and yeah. then you would you would have to give them that album your full attention. Yeah. Yeah. You've you've made a bad um, an error of judgment or not? And there's, yeah. a, there's a few from the Britpop we've seen that yeah. tested the lasted the test of time like I thought they had. And then there's other yeah. bands which um, weren't my favourites at the time that I think have lasted really well, which um, Supergrass and Placebo. Yeah, we're listening to the other day because we were actually just uh, playing some tunes from the nineties, and I think yeah. that their music's lasted quite well. And at the time, they weren't really right up the top of my list. Although Supergrass was the first band I've ever seen live. Yeah. But, but yeah, there's a it, so it, I think when take all when we we when streaming culture, it's like even I, I see myself doing it where I'm like making up. I don't really use Spotify. I didn't put any of my music on Spotify until very recently, about you know less right. less than a year ago. I was so against Spotify, but yeah, why is it? That's where people are now. So yeah. I had, so that was that was felt like a bit of a small selling out moment for me. But at the end of the day, that's yeah, where but the, the thing is, Mark. The thing is. You, the thing is, the only reason human beings are on the planet is because we've because we adapt. 
If you don't adapt, you fucking die. It's again, it's that thing of. I remember having a conversation with Kenny Anderson a, a quite quite a long time ago now, and he was really, really fucking angry about streaming and about Spotify and all these. He was so fucking angry about it. He was desperate for people to to keep buying CDs and albums, and um, and I just couldn't take it seriously because, I mean, you know. What are you going to do? Just release your stuff on C ninety tape, yeah. Just, just to make a point, because no one's going to fucking hear it. Yeah. Now, ultimately, you want people to hear what you do. You want people to hear art, you know. And yeah, the medium is a pile of crap. It really is a pile of crap. The sound quality is a pile of crap. The um, the whole method about getting it is a pile of crap. Um, the transientness of it, like you were saying, you know, the fact that you don't. <laughs> The one thing that kind of made me change my mind on it was that uh, we were travelling to gigs a lot and Joe had it on, she had the premium version which didn't have adverts and that's the first time I'd heard that. Yeah. And I, I was like, okay, this is quite cool because the algorithm was was suggesting some good tunes either that I, I would already like or things that, that I would like, which is quite, yeah. it's, it is quite good that way. But the True. problem... But what what I do find transient about it is, is the fact that you hear something good and you go, what is that? And you quickly have a quick glance at the name of the band and you go, I'll try and remember that. Yeah. But don't, because it's gone and the next song's on. <laughs> your, your attention's gone and you've, you're checking your notifications. And so it's, it's really hard for a band to, uh, you know, I think I think a couple of bands that have been quite uh, good to get through it all has been, uh, well, Sleaford Mods, we went to see a scene in the film with, with, with you down in Brighton. And yeah. also Idols, i seen them at Bristol um, a yeah. couple of weeks ago and that was their homecoming gig and it felt like they had a really good message throughout they started every song with saying this is an anti-fascist song yeah <laughs> and, <laughs> song. and um, you know it was one of the ones that got funny then it got a bit played out and then by the end it was funny and it was like a call yeah. to arms and I quite like the, the idea behind that because we're right wing propaganda they just repeat the same lie over and over yeah. again 
Yeah. yeah. But yeah. I made it very clear the centre stalwart, you can't be a fascist and like this music, I'm afraid yeah. it's not for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's um, I, I really like idols. I think I think they I think they're great. Yeah, re- really good. Yeah, and Sleaford mods. Um, yeah, just uh, I mean, thank fucking God, you know. I mean, imagine you know. I mean, imagine that they didn't exist. You know that. Just, oh my God. Yeah, and it's also <laughs> they obviously put the work in as well. I mean, there's lot yeah. there's loads of good bands that I could mention, but. The reality is, is that they've not really got the work ethic, you know, and I'll include yeah. my, own work, my own band in that. Is, I've got the work ethic, but it's yeah. hard to find band members who are like, right, let's, let's go in this, you know, let's do this tour. And yeah. because the fees aren't as good, and they're just like, well, we might not, you know, it's like, I, I would just want to do the tour and actually yeah. be But, you know, that's just me. I'm not. No, I know. It's, 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 it's difficult. It's really difficult because I think that. Like when I was starting out, you know, there was still that dream of of getting signed, you know, yeah. and so you might get signed, but now it's like, well, you're you're probably not going to get signed. Yeah. If you do yeah. get signed, you're not gonna they're not going to give you enough money to live on for a couple of years, mm-hmm. you know. So it's 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 hard. I think that that's if I mean we've reached a situation now with with music where most of the people making it these days that are successful are the sons and daughters of the establishment. Yeah. You know, they've, 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 they've been at university, they've been to, you know, some stage school or whatever it might be. And they can afford to do it for yeah. a bit, you know, because, but, you know, if, if the music you make is not putting food on your table, it's not paying your rent or whatever. If you don't have to, you know, it puts a really different complexion on it. You know, there's that hunger. There's no hunger there, really. There's no do or die mentality. And also, yeah. where's the criticism of the establishment? Where, where does that come from if it's not coming from 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 music? I mean, I remember, you know, remember Pop Top of the Pops, you know? I mean, when I was a kid, there was all sorts of stuff in there. You know, you'd have fucking, you know, Clive Dunn, and then you'd have the Buzzcocks, and you know, and then uh, you know all sorts of crap. But but there was there was there was seemed to be room for everything, you know. There seemed to be room for everything, and and now I um, it's just it just feels like one like you like you were saying, it feels like one algorithm, you know. And I think that I think music's in trouble. I really do think music is trouble because I mean the Sleaford mods they stand out so much, don't they? They, they? They're like they really stand out as being one of the very, very few bands that are actually attempting to put a spotlight and a magnifying glass on what's happening, you know? Yeah, there's, I mean, I think I think the grime and the hip-hop scene's doing their bit as well, but... Okay, yeah, well, you might... I mean, you're probably right. I'm totally out of touch with that. Yeah, <laughs> but, they're, but, but unfortunately, because they're, they're trapped in their algorithm and it's very unlikely that they're going to reach and change any, any you know, minds out, out with... The, out, out with their bubble as yeah. well. Uh, when you talk about criticism, man, how, that's a question I like to ask everyone as well, is um, when you get a bad review or you get criticised, how, how do you deal with that? Um, it depends really who's who's done it. I mean, I'm quite lucky. I don't really get that many bad reviews. I am pretty lucky like that. But it depends who's done it really. You know, if it's some little, you know, prick with on a blog, yeah, 
the him and his mates treat well, I don't I don't really give a fuck, you know. But um um I mean it does I don't know. I mean I'm a very sensitive person, so these things you know, they do kind of affect you. I mean I get affect I get affected by by things. I mean, you know, going back to that sec going back to the kind of misogynistic thing, recently I had a thing on Twitter. Um, actually, it wasn't that recently now. It was probably about a year ago. But um, where I, my daughter had been awake for like two or three nights in a row and I was totally exhausted. Not had any sleep at all. And I walked past the television and Sophie Ellis Bexter, the sort of pop star, was on the TV talking about Larry Levan. I'm a big fan of Larry Levan. And for some reason, it really just got my goat that there was this pop star with a songwriting team and a team of producers trying to um, you know make people think of Larry Levan as if there was some sort of connection between what that pop star's doing and what Larry Levan did which was truly groundbreaking and it really got my goat I don't know why it's just one of those things where you just you just snap because you're knackered but you should never take to Twitter when you're fucking tired, man. <laughs> so anyway, so I posted, um, listen to Sophie Ellis. Bit. I mean, it was, don't get me wrong, this tweet is just, I should never have done it. It's moronic and it's really bitter and it's banal, but I did it. So I tweeted that listening to Sophie Ellis Bex to talk about um, disco is like listening to John Major talk about post-punk. <laughs> And so I got completely fucking jumped on by um, by a couple of people, you know, as being this misogynistic pig, and and uh, and it went massive, you know. I mean, because the thing is, I tweeted, and then I basically put my phone down. I didn't check my phone again until about two in the morning, and it had all kicked off during the day. <laughs> and it was like, um, so I walked in the house with a hangover, and it was all kicking off. I was like, oh my fucking god, what am I going to do now? I ended up like. Did you just delete it or apologize? No, um, I can't remember if I delete. I don't think I deleted it, but I I ended up issuing an apology, which, which, which I wouldn't have done if it was up to me. But my manager kind of said, "Look, you really need to, you really need to just nip this in the bud because." Yeah. But it was, um, but you know, so but that really that really affected me. The fact that all these people on Twitter are calling you this name, which is something, as I said before, and it's something that I've always kind of fought against and something that I've, um, that I hate, that I hate in other men, you know, fucking violently hate that crap in other men. And the fact is it wasn't, it wasn't a misogynistic tweet and it wasn't sexist. It was just a moronic fucking banal tweet that yeah. never happens. But, you know, you do, so obviously you are sensitive about these things and, you know, and, um, but really, uh, the problem is as well is that when you actually, if anyone does apologise, it's yeah. not enough anyway. Really, for some people, it's like the the, the pitchforks are out by that point. And if yeah. it's like, so, even if even if someone does make, um, you know, I've seen loads of people making real genuine apologies. Yeah, and, and it's just like it's, not, it's never good enough. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, they've because... made up their mind that yeah. this is the enemy. Yeah, because there's team, there's teams of people out there waiting to jump on someone and try and and try and you know in inverted commas delete them you know they seem to this there's the really it's twitter is a vicious fucking place to play nowadays man yeah you know and, and and by and by me saying that i'm not saying that in any way that sex is so misogynistic sweets should be allowed because they shouldn't and but 
<laughs> it's funny that you've actually got to clarify that. Though. Oh, I know. Yeah, you do. So it's right. Like, just, just in case anyone's listening back and they're saying, "Oh, you're saying misogyny is fine in Twitter." Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I know. Yeah. No, I know. It's the world. That whole world. I mean, Twitter now is just a battleground. You know, it really is yeah. just a battleground. It's not. It, it was fun for a long time. It was like an adult's playground, you know. And but now it just seems to be a lot of incredibly um, a cro- a lot of incredibly angry people that are desperate well, to be you, you, you kind of left Facebook to go to Twitter to get away from it, didn't you? I see you sort of yeah. more a Twitter guy than a Facebook guy. So yeah, why was- now I do Instagram to be honest. Now most of what yeah. I, most of what I post on Twitter is just promotion stuff. Yeah. You know? um, but Instagram Instagram's great because. You know, it feels like it feels more artistic. Instagram, Twitter, yeah. I guess, is a conversation, and these days it's just a nasty conversation. Yeah. Um, but Instagram feels more artistic, and I get a lot more out of Instagram. I really enjoy Instagram a lot. You know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it's uh, it's, it's, it's when you're scrolling through it. Obviously, it's got its negative side, but it feels like everybody's boasting about how great their lives are. But if you're following if you're following the right people, then you yeah. get some good stuff. And it's just a it's just a nice bit of brain pizza for yourself to just sort yeah. of rather than going to Facebook, you're going to Gant or Twitter. You're going, guaranteed there's going to be a, a political thing kicking off. Yeah, and, yeah. And just strangers arguing with each other that are never going to agree with each other. And I, I, I really yeah. worry about people that that they're wasting their time and their energies on arguing with strangers on the internet. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That, but it just it goes it goes entirely back to what I'm saying, like about. Turning off the news, turning off social media, go outside the house and have a conversation with someone. Yeah, you know th- these are the things that actually change things. Either, shouting into an echo chamber is never going to change anything. Having your own views repeated back to you, and then arguing with strangers because the thing is, it's not the reason why Twitter I think has become such a nasty place to be is because people people immediately go straight up to like you know DefCon one. You know, they go straight. It start. Somebody makes a comment, and then immediately it's like, "Well, fuck your mother. I hope you get AIDS. You're a fucking bell end. And if I see you on the street, I'm gonna fucking chib you." Where, where, what happened to the just? What happened to a bit of debate? Yeah. What, what happened to just a bit of? And that, and it used to be like that. They used to be. There was, there was a time. There was a debate we'd go on, and people would go, "I respectfully disagree," or "I've never really thought of it that way." But it feels like now, if you say that, you're you're letting your tribe down, and everyone's got a tribe. Right. That they want to, they want to get, you know, if you doesn't matter how ridiculous your idea is or your comment is, you're you're still going to get likes from your tribe, yeah. And, and that's what it's all about, just just that yeah. little, little tribe. And uh, I, it's, I mean, you're just talking about saying hello to people down the street. I, I I would say Brighton's quite a good place for that. Brighton seemed quite friendly when you know I, I've been there down there a couple of times now, and it seems like quite a good place to live. It's it's a brilliant place to live. Unfortunately, we had to move out of there because I couldn't afford to buy a house there. So I'm I'm along the coast, about um, five or six miles in a place called Worthing, yeah. Which is a, which is a lot more sort of uh, Union Jacks and St George's Crosses. Yeah. But um, but you know um, it's 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 fine, man. It's fine. I mean, you've got to make you've got to make compromises. You know, my daughter needs. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to buy. A, I, I I've put off becoming an adult. For, for 47 years I've done alright you know yeah. it's, time, it's time I it's time I tried to be an adult and so, so I bought a house and all that stuff and you've got to start thinking about schools and um, and all that I mean the, she's she's going to start primary school in a couple of months and that's when 
we'll really get an idea of what the people are like around here and what the, whether it's um whether it's a nice mixed school or uh, nice mixed classes or whatever it is you know because i i don't really want her to grow up in a pure because she's mixed race so i don't really want her to grow up in a pure white school and be the be the odd one out especially just because of the climate that we have in the uk at the moment yeah. which is just this absolutely poisonous uh you know green lights for right wingers everywhere you know so it's, it's Wovin. is that is that the place where you were because the last time I was down, you said you were doing a DJ thing with Duffy. Um, is that a different place? That was in Hove, which is just which is part oh. of Brighton. It's where I used to live. I used to live in Hove. So, so, so you still you still doing DJ sets and stuff like that? Is that? Yeah, yeah, I'm doing. I'm playing on Friday with Pete Wiggs from St Etienne. Do you remember St Etienne? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. yeah so me and him are DJing um, at the same pub actually. So, so my mate, a mate of mine runs a runs a monthly night, and 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 I do it. Sort of every sort of six months or whatever. So, so me and Pete Wiggs are doing one this Friday. Yeah. So just about just about everything then. Yeah, man. Just the total mix. Yeah. I'm, uh, I bought I bought I bought a few records over the last six months. So, um, yeah. I mean, Pete's Pete's a really good DJ. He's a really good DJ. So, me and him work well together. So, um, yeah. Just a ma- just a massive mix of everything. Everything from sort of uh, gospel to. Um, I mean, uh, yeah, fuck knows everything, man. Yeah, everything. And also, have you got you've got a tour coming up as well? Do you want to plug the tour? Yeah, so I'm on tour pretty much the whole of November. If you go to, um, you could go to my Twitter page and have a look, or my Instagram page. The dates are up there, or you could go to stevemasontheartist.com. All the November dates are up there. It's a pretty uh, comprehensive UK tour in Scotland. There's an Edinburgh date and a Dundee date. And then in December, um, I'm going on to just to do some little Christmas dates because um, I'm a nice guy. Um, and that's just going to be me and my keyboard player. Um, I'll play. I'll be playing the guitar and all that. So that's going to be really kind of small venues, nice and intimate and just a bit sort of Christmassy and a bit trying to just forget about um, the cunts that are running the world for just a little bit, you know, just just give me an hour, an hour and a half of your time, and uh, you know, I might be able to make you smile, and you know. So, yeah, I've actually got some like a few questions, man. Before we go to get yeah. before yeah. we're asking, um, Gary Quaver Davis is actually just on top of that. Is he was asking why you don't play beta band songs in your set when you play live? Is that a deliberate decision? Um, yes. Yeah, a deliberate decision yeah i mean i i i, I hate um you know uh nostalgia more than anything um and i like to just move forward you know i like moving forward and there'll be a time i mean i did a big show at the barbican you know yeah i was there man that was oh, yeah you were there yeah so yeah. so that was like a retrospective so i played a lot of that stuff there and um and it was it was and it was it was great it was great to do it but Every now and then I'll stick in the odd thing, you know. Um, but um, I just think that what I'm doing now is, what you know, when, when you're an artist, what you're doing now is what's relevant to you and it's what you can put your passion into. It's how you feel now. And um, Was that bar- was that, was that bar- sorry, Barbarican? I don't know if I'm saying it right. Was that, because that was a full orchestra and stuff. Did you know, was that not, did that not get filmed or was that not coming out? Or It did get, so yeah. So I don't really know what's happening to that. But yeah, it got filmed in 3D. By a company called um, uh, God, I can't remember what they're called now. Um, 
and we were, we were just waiting for that company to launch because they, they, they basically they were just going around gathering loads and loads of content and filming loads of gigs. Um, so I think it's launched now, but I need to find out uh, what, what's going on with it. It's just another it's another thing on the list to get done, man. Yeah, but yeah, but it was filmed and recorded, and I've seen it, and it and it's fantastic. But yeah, I'm amazing. hoping, yeah, I'm hoping at some point that, that will come out because yeah, it's really good. It's worth seeing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It was, um, it was brilliant, and I think also it's. I think I remember. Um, I think if I'm right in saying you when your last ever beat a band gig at the garage, you just didn't play Dry the Rain. If I remember rightly, um, it was at the Liquid Rooms. Liquid, uh, yeah. I don't. I honestly don't remember, Mark. Yeah. I don't remember. Yeah, I remember. Well, it might not have been your last Barras gig, but I think it was just a Barras gig. You, you didn't play it. Oh, and I think, yeah. but I know what you're getting. At. It's, eventually, a song we we sometimes get the you, you play Jeremy Kyle song, and it's like, nah. <laughs> nah. I don't think we will. We'll be, but then every so often, because you've not played it for ages and nobody's uh, expecting it, then it's it's got the element of surprise, and then I think that's a completely different thing. Because well, that's the thing. That's the thing. Off, I mean, some, sometimes, off. sometimes if I'm Playing like at Green Man Festival a few years ago, you know it was it was a it was an amazing gig, and you just think, all right, let's do Dry the Rain, you know. Yeah. Um, but if people expect it, expect you to do it, then it's not really very special, you know. It's not yeah. special. And I don't want people sitting there at my gigs waiting for me yeah. to do it. If people know I don't do it, then they're yeah. there to hear my new stuff. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, you, there's so many artists that you go to see, and everyone is just waiting for that song, and then they yeah. then they just leave. Yeah, and, and it's not really a good way of uh, running a career if you're actually trying no. to be a serious artist. Yeah, uh, because I mean, short term you could probably sell some more tickets, but I mean, I think Ian Brown did that for a while as well. He didn't play any Stone Roses songs for a while, yeah. and yeah. that was quite a brave decision, whether you like Ian Brown or not. But that was a, mm. a it was a brave decision to not do anything. And then I was at the academy when he did just play it. But I liked his solo stuff, but then when he did play it, it just erupted. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, but you, you you played with the Stone Roses last year. How did that come about? Um, just friends with Manny, and I stayed at his house um, at some point, and um, and we'd already talked about. I'd already sort of thrown my hat in the ring, <laughs> and he and he's. But this time when I was staying with him, um, he said, "Look, you know, I think it's going to happen this time because this will probably be the last gig that we do." Yeah, you know, and I and I really want to get you on. You know, um, the primal. So it's going to be it'll be you, primal scream, and us. And you know, he wanted he wanted some of his friends. You know, at the last ever one. So, and so it was the last ever one by all accounts. I don't. It's over since it, that was the last gig because obviously I was at that one as yeah. well. It had a very final feel to it. Yeah, I don't. I, I yeah, I don't. I think that's it, man. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, I've got a question here for Stuart Bestie McDonald who says, do you remember a band called Alfie? He always thought they felt like the Mancunian first cousins of the beta band and deserved wider recognition. <laughs> I do remember Alfie because they were on Powerphone and I met Lee. We went to some EMI Christmas party and we got talk. I got talking with Lee. And also um, when I was in Manchester recording Meet the Humans with Craig Potter, um, I was staying in um, Charlton, and Lee lives in Charlton, so I used to go to the. Pub, I used to see him in the pub quite a lot. Um, um, yeah, so I, to be honest with you, I don't really remember much about their mu- their music, but um, but yeah, so it's difficult for me to answer that question. But I know that they were sort of. I think they were a bit influenced by us. I'm. I'm not. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Yeah. But, um, 
I remember their name. I, did, I remember one or two, but I never really. I, I, I don't really remember much about them either. Yeah. I, 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 I think that there was a, a good hype behind them at one point. Yeah. Also, Stuart, Stuart's got a, a follow up question. He says, also, do you remember anything about Rod Spark? Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the, a preposterous character in the Edinburgh music scene. They had a band together probably 30 years ago. Yeah. Well, the band I was telling you about the mod band that called me up and the first time I ever played on an album, that was the band with Rod Spark. Yeah, that was second yeah. generation. Yeah. 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 That's the end of that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, John McCrory, who used to play bass for the Gyro Babies, shouts to John McCrory. Yeah. Uh, he says, as uh, the obvious one would be, is there going to be a sneaky wee beat a band gig in the future? And a slightly less obvious one would be how he deals with mental health and being a musician. Does he have a specific coping mechanisms, etc.? Mm. Uh, well, there the won't be a beta band gig, but the the, the other one. Um, I mean, I was I, I was I was really lucky in that I, I put a lot of time and effort into into getting help. So I I I got I, when I started getting serious help, it was it was about four years, sort of on and off for sort of like two or three month periods and I was getting um, hypnosis and stuff um, but not really hypnosis like you imagine it, it was there's different levels of hypnosis you know and um, sometimes it'd be really really deep and other times you'd be very very lucid and it's hard work it's really hard work but it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done and I'm very lucky that I've been about um, probably six six years something like that off the meds and um, I just don't have that problem in my life anymore. I don't, I don't get depressed anymore. I, I, I've, I've, I've put it all to bed, and I'm very, very, very lucky. Um, you know, so I really am one of the lucky ones in that I had the time and the money to, to, to go and see someone every week. I didn't go through the NHS because it was just, it just takes forever. So I'm, I'm, I am really lucky. But in terms of if you can afford it. And you've got the time. It's the best money you'll ever spend because everybody des- everybody deserves to just be free of the shackles of that of that stuff because it just weighs you down, man, and it's just infects every part of your life and it's so tiring, and you become and so selfish, you know. And do you ever get anxious before a gig or anything like that, or is it just normal nerves? Yeah, just normal nerves, man. Yeah, totally normal nerves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool, man. Glad to hear it. Um, and Jennifer McGinley asks. Any more Alien Stadium work plan? Should we hope to be more after the EP mini album? <laughs> yeah, good question, Jennifer. Well, um, I'm actually um, I'm I've just finished an EP that's coming out um, in October, and me and Duffy have uh, we've done a track on the EP called Headcase, um, and so that's a that's close to an Alien Stadium track. But yeah, we've been talking about it a lot. Yeah, he's pretty keen to to do another one. So um, basically at the moment, I'm just converting my attic into a little studio. So once that's done, um, I think, because uh, he only lives about sort of three or four miles away. So we'll be able to get on and, and try and get some new stuff. It's certainly something we've both been talking and thinking about. Yeah, for sure. Oh, good stuff, man. Uh, che Woodman again says, when will he be returning to the still stained streets of Fife for old Jock Radio? Might be in Cooper or Methyl, only Dodd and Les Troy know. This is the biggest question of all, surely. Um, well, I, I, I'd been thinking about it 
I haven't been up in Scotland for a while because my mum moved away from Scotland, so my dad's still up there. But I haven't been up for a while. But then I started listening to Old Jot Radio on the on Spotify, the podcast, and it made me really, really homesick, and it really made me miss Pete and Sandy and uh, and the radio station days, you know, because we did so much of that stuff. So I'm dying to go up there and and and, and do it. I, I'd love to go up. Uh, I mean, I wanted to go up before Christmas, but I don't know if that's going to be possible now. I really don't. But Pete's coming down here for a holiday um, uh, in a couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, so, Old Jock Radio, when the, 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 I mean, that, I think that first time the Old Jock Radio was the beta band brought out a DVD, a sort of collection of videos and stuff. Yeah. And the Old Jock Radio jingle was in it, and I was just in stitches, and then I, yeah. I tuned in every week after that. Yeah, yeah. And the demo dump, man. The demo dump was 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 so cruel. You'd put your song up there, and everyone <laughs> on MSN Messenger just ripping it to shreds. <laughs> and that, that was quite good. I think it was quite good for our early demos because obviously from the my we were just up loading songs to MySpace, and everybody just said, "Yeah, that's good, that's good." But yeah. to get criticised so early on was quite, <laughs> was quite good. <laughs> and so who, was, who was criticizing it? Just, just everyone on MSN. It was like, oh, right, okay, right, just yeah. everybody's just, um, you know, what, just, terrible minute. It was me. No, I don't, I don't think. So. I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't think so. It was just the, uh, just the general feeling. I mean, the I think listeners, the listeners. Yeah, the listeners. Everyone was just trying to outdo each other with the funniest takedown of whatever was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and Pete was standing in the middle of it, saying that he's impartial. <laughs> <laughs> laughing as he's reading out the sentence you know what I mean but in yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah no I mean um, it was uh, I mean I've been listening to, so I've been listening to the new shows they've been doing and they're absolutely brilliant Sandy's really back on form you know or Dodd as he's called yeah, he's yeah really so any of so you call that radio listeners if you want another podcast to check out it's Old Jock Radio which um, has just came back after um, but it's, it's, it's always, always been a good show yeah. Um and so, what we hold on. I think I've got. Um, I think you should, you should. Have you done? Have you had Pete on uh, or, Do, or Les on, no, Pete, you, on your podcast? I've not, but I'm going to do it, man. I think it'd be good to do a, a wee swap cast because apparently that's what that's the that's what you're supposed to do. But I've just basically I just started this thing in June, and I just uh, I've managed to get t- ten episodes done. I think this is going to be there's an eleventh one that's not been released yet, but this yeah. is the twelfth. And I just wanted to do something independently where I didn't have to rely on anyone. And I just, I've just yeah. kind of been uh, just doing as much as I can. But I did actually get a couple of words with him at the at your gig at SWG three, which is brilliant. And I got, yeah. I got, I got a quick word with him there. So yeah. maybe, maybe drop that in at the end of this show, and I'll, yeah. and I'll, I'll drop in the old Jock Radio jingle as well because that's probably the only your only work that I can use without getting a copyright issue. <laughs> will, I get, will I be playing any of your tunes? Do you think? What, what's that? Sorry. Well, I get away with playing any Steve Mason or Beta Band tunes in the show, or the thing. It's just. I mean, too risky. Um, so you'd be. Uh, I can't remember who owns the publishing on the Beta Band stuff now. I just can't remember. Oh, it's it's Domino. If you play some, if you play some early Beta Band stuff, and and any stuff of of my my later stuff, you'll be fine because it's Domino that own all that stuff. And yeah. If, and if you and if they say anything. Uh, let me know and I'll just try and clear it all up. You know. All right, amazing, mate. Well, maybe just play a wee, a wee, wee sample here and there or whatever throughout the show. That's brilliant. Yeah, good stuff, man. Right, brilliant. And um, yeah, man. So is oh, Adam Marshall? Would you ever do a duet with the Gyros? 
um, yeah, I mean, if if it was the right if it was the right thing, you know, yeah, I mean, uh, I I think with duets and things like that, I mean, it, um, it's got to. There's no point in doing it for the sake of it. It's got to be yeah. right, and I think that what. It's like when you asked me to do that remix, I, I just thought, well, I, I can't, I don't think I can make, I can't make this any better than it is. Yeah. I thought it was great. And that, yeah, that was like, late night sketchy, I think. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. And then I did try, a la- I, I was aiming to get, bring potions to get you to the vocal because I kind of wrote the vocal right. with you in, the, the, the hook with you in mind. But yeah. the Robbie, Robbie's just such a perfectionist, making sure, well, as far as the guitars go, just making sure those guitars were just right. And then by that point, it was like we'd, we'd, we'd no time left. It was like we'd two days before it went to get yeah. into dot and vinyl and stuff like that. Well, but if there's anything else like that, just, set, just yeah. um, give me a shout and send it down to me because I can do the vocals here, no problem. Cool, man. Nice one. So, yeah. is it, is it, so man, that's, that's, a, that's an hour and 45, man. Thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Um, yeah, I better go. It's my tea time. Right. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> Well, thank you very much. I hope the tour goes well, man. I'll, I'll, I'll try and catch you, Edinburgh. Yeah, man, definitely. Give me, give me a shout if you want to come down. Right, nice one, mate. All the best, man. Take it easy, man. Catch you later. Bye. Oh,